How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you kidding? This is a fucking costume. This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare them. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shot, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them, so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. <laughs> Why are you so giggly, Gary? I'm, I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. Because you keep highlighting the words on the notes. We're sharing a document, and you're just like, it's like flashing purple. Uh, that's just me. Head. That's just me. Like, uh, that's just a nervous. Uh, I was going to say, that's Justin's ADD. I'm just fidgeting. I'm fidgeting. It's this one. It's this one. We're on this line. I'm also <laughs> playing with to a... tell me something? Is this no, a I'm coach? Just fi- I'm just fidgeting. Just ignore me. <laughs> and I'm writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Uncle Ben meant the world to us. He wouldn't want us recording one second with this movie in our hearts. It's like a poison. It can take you over. Before you know it, turn this podcast into something ugly. So thank you for joining us for our look at the final chapter of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Todd showing his cards early with that intro. <laughs> he is. He chose quite that's, the that's quote. It's a modified quote from the movie, fellas. <laughs> I know, but you chose you chose that quote specifically. It's true. I was I looking did. back. Sometimes <laughs> when I'm doing notes for this thing, I'm like looking back at my other notes to be like, did I mention everything I meant to mention? And there's two things I left out of the previous two episodes that I wanted to bring up. And okay. One of them should have gone on the road to Spider-Man, which hopefully the people enjoyed. But we, I didn't mention that in 1996, in World Championship Wrestling, WCW, there was a character uh, played by Brad Armstrong, uh, who's the brother of the road dog. Uh, but he was a character named Arachna Man. And <laughs> he came out, and it was basically a Spider-Man costume, but it was like yellow and blue instead. And he would, and you can find it on YouTube. And like he runs in the ring and he jumps up on the turnbuckles and he does the shoot out of his arms, but it's like streamers instead of. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> it so is dumb. so dumb. That's like the yeah. asylum pictures version of Spider Man. <laughs> and I was reading, I was looking at it and I was watching some of the YouTube and I was like, why didn't this work? And uh, <laughs> besides the obvious, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I, I don't think you need to ask that question. <laughs> Apparently, Marvel got wind of it though, also. And we're yeah, like, no, no shit. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is not going to happen, Ted Turner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's funny. Uh, <laughs> that was a funny one too. And also one we didn't mention in last Spider-Man episode for Spider-Man 2 that I really meant to bring up that we should have just how weird of a Kawiki dig that the Doctor Strange references that exist in Spider-Man 2. It's super freaking weird that he goes on. For instance, there's uh when J. Jonah Javis is trying to name Spider-Man, he says Doctor Strange. Strange. Yeah. Or I guess I guess Ted Raby says Doctor yeah. Strange. And he's like, no, nah, it's taken. 
But then also apparently Joe's Pizza in there too. The address of Joe's Pizza in the movie is the address of this uh, Sanctum Santorum. Oh, really? Doctor Strange. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. funny. Nice. Super weird. Anyway, just very uh, fun. We Some... got we he could he he rounded out that story pretty nicely. Yeah, a couple of uh, Gary <laughs> facts that should have been in previous episodes, I guess. Just catching up on Gary facts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, as Todd mentioned, we are concluding our discussion on Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. And you know, guys, I really wish I could come in here, spend this episode talking about how Raimi was able to end his trilogy on a high note, how his third Spider-Man movie joined the ranks of films like Return of the King as this like kind of rousing capper to a great franchise. Or Robocop 3. Well, well, we're getting to that category, which is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, with this film, uh, you know, Raimi's Spider-Man franchise joins a group of other series like The Terminator, Superman, even The Godfather, a uh, series that had a, a really good first film or a great first film, a really great sequel. And then somewhere along the line, this, as the series continued, something went profoundly wrong, like with RoboCop, although I would hesitate to call RoboCop to a great sequel, but it's watchable. Yeah, yeah that's uh, a good point. I get you. You could almost call this series the rise and fall of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, uh, because after two incredible successes, Raimi's trilogy capper brought the franchise to a screeching halt, and, and not without good reason, honestly. So today, what we're going to talk about is what the hell went wrong with Spider-Man Three. Revenge is like a poison and take us over before you know it can turn you into something ugly the suit where'd this come from the power feels good you lose yourself to it whoa spidey love the new outfit Remember Ben Parker? What does it matter to you anyway? Everything! Do you want to push me away? Why would I want to push you away? I love you. You knew this was coming, Pete. I didn't kill your father! What's happened to you? We've all done terrible things to each other. But we have to forgive each other. Or everything we ever were will mean nothing. I need your help. I have to stop it. We didn't want this. But we had no choice. We told the audience we were going to do a Sam Raimi series, and they said to us, are you guys going to talk about all the Spider-Man movies? We realized now they were just trying to help us. Then Gary and I read Justin's notes, and the record button was in Gary's hand. We've done a terrible thing to you. We spent a lot of nights wishing we could take it back. We just want you to understand, we didn't choose to be this. I mean, we did, but, you know, just come on. The only thing left for us now are the spoilers. Forgive us. I try to think about if a new listener were coming into this podcast and they heard that, would they know that that was warning them there are spoilers? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I, I'm getting, I'm slowly getting further and further away from spoiler Todd's spoiler warnings. warnings have, I've, I've become and just now, and now Todd's acting corner <laughs> increasingly unhinged increasingly <laughs> lengthy and less of a warning for spoilers than ever before right <laughs> that, Todd that, strays further and further from God's love that uh right. that spoiler warning was as bloated and unwieldy as the movie <laughs> we're movie. about to talk about 
<laughs> now say what you will though, but I did think of this earlier because I was I don't know why it came into my head, but Sam Raimi I think is the first director to tackle three installments in a superhero franchise. So take it easy on him. I think at the time, uh, like yeah. Brian Singer only had the he did two, two. X Men. Tim Burton did. Joel mm-hmm. Schumacher each did. Richard, Richard Donner, Donner. Did too. Uh, yeah. 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 Even yes. jo- even um, I mean, this was after Raimi, but um, even John Favreau only did two Iron Man movies initially. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have Nolan, uh, which hadn't happened yet. But right, yeah, you know. yeah. But prior to this, yeah, I think you're right. I can't think of any others. So, well, yeah, poor nice. Sam, poor Sam. Please, please let us know and send all of your hate mail to at Justin underscore Bishop. No, no, that was Gary's. Oh, uh, sorry, that was Gary's note. You can send no, that. you're right. You're right. That's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Another sorry, random so... fun fact I decided to throw at the top of the episode, but it was just, <laughs> it was just interesting to think about. It, it was like, nobody's done this yet. Yeah, you're right. Well, much like they had done with the first sequel, Sony began planning on a third Spider-Man film before Spider-Man 2 had even been released. In March of 2004, which is about three months before Spider-Man 2 came out, they announced that Spider-Man 3 was already in development with a planned release date in the summer of 2007. The following January, Sony signed a seven-figure deal with screenwriter Alvin Sargent to script Spider-Man 3, and they actually included an option for him to write a fourth film as well. Now, uh, Alvin Sargent, we've talked about him a little bit in the past uh, on this series. Gary's talked about him a little bit more, I think, than I have. But uh, I don't know how much we've really gotten into his background. But, you know, at the time that he he made this, or at the time that he was hired to write Spider-Man 3, he was 74 years old and a two-time Oscar winner. He won an Oscar uh, for screenwriting for his work on Robert Redford's Ordinary People and on Fred Zinneman's Julia. He also got nominated for an Oscar for uh, Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. So, you know, he is not nothing to scoff at. Like, this guy's a yeah, legit I was gonna say, screenwriter. He's not a <laughs> right, exactly. And as we mentioned on previous episodes, he had been brought into the series the series by his wife, by Laura Ziskin, to do some uncredited rewrites on the first Spider-Man film, and then he received a sole credit for writing the second. Uh, However, on Spider-Man 3, he is one of three credited screenwriters, the other two being Sam Raimi himself and Sam's brother, Ivan. Well, almost immediately after the release of Spider-Man 2 in the summer of 2004, Sam and Ivan Raimi spent uh, two months working on a treatment for another sequel. And then when Sargent was brought on, his job was basically to hash the Raimi's ideas into actual script pages, uh, elaborating on characters and refining dialogue, which is kind of what he was known for. Alvin Sargent is, uh, we we mentioned that last episode that he was really big on the dialogue thing. Uh, And Ivan, I think we've mentioned every single episode that he's... Of, Of almost every Sam Raimi movie. Yeah. He's been there somewhere. Yeah, he seems to hang around anyway. Like on this one, I know in a couple of the commentaries I was listening to, people talk about him being there. He's got a cameo in this movie again. Uh, he walks by like, I think it's the coffee shop scene where Harry and uh, Peter are like talking. You know, they talk about, he'll come in and help Sam out with certain scenes to like get him going. If like Sam doesn't f- feel like they're they're moving in the right direction. And this one, he spent a lot of time in the bugle. For instance, they said that he would sit with Elizabeth Banks and J.K. Simmons and Ted Raimi, and they would do a thousand versions of funny shit yeah. for them, you know, so that something would be what Sam and his editor would want. Well, while working on the story for the film, Raimi's first priority was to focus on Peter Parker's development as a character. Uh, the way that they kind of saw it, uh, the way they, they kind of envisioned it, uh, Peter at this point in, in his 
character arc, he really begins to see things in a very black and white way. You know, he's the hero and all the criminals criminals that he puts away are villains and it's it's like a binary so sam and ivan wanted to show that things aren't that binary and that peter isn't above these people and that even though he's a hero he might have a little bit of villainy a little bit of darkness inside of them and that the others you know even though they're criminals they might have a little bit of humanity in them and peter's journey in the film they thought was to be one rooted not in vengeance but in forgiveness that's kind of the direction that they wanted him to take throughout this so once they decided on that direction, they started to consider which villains would best dramatize this journey. As we've discussed, the villains in the first two films, they're really intrinsically linked to Peter's story and to his growth as a person. Uh, so they tried to take this same approach with the third film as well. They wanted to find a villain whose own story could somehow be linked to Peter's and help Peter grow as a character. And they finally settled on the Sandman which is a classic character from Spider-Man's rogues gallery, one that was a big part of the comics that Raimi read growing up. Uh, but in the comics, Sandman is little more than a petty criminal. You know, he doesn't have a whole lot of backstory. He's just a guy and somehow gets turned into a, a sand guy. <laughs> but the Raimi's reworked the character's backstory so that he would be linked to Uncle Ben's death, thus creating the impediment for Peter's journey from vengeance to forgiveness. Sam Raimi... Uh says like him and like Toby, Grant Curtis, not Sam Reed, but Laura Ziskin also says that all four of them are like, they, they've been pretty much on the Sandman train since the first one. They said like Sam's always been interested in the Sandman. They said like during press interviews for the first two Spider-Man movies, Raimi and McGuire, you can find references to them mentioning Sandman as a villain that they'd want to see uh, eventually so and that and that makes sense because i mean sandman when you read through like the old comic he's one of the more repetitive characters that shows up him and doc ock and i i, I would say like maybe rivaled by the vulture who yeah. we'll talk about but you know that you can see why sam would be interested in him not sure how i feel about the connection to ben i mean none of these characters in those older comics had as much backstory as Sam gives them in the movie. So it makes sense. He would want to flesh that out, but yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I've got my opinions on that plot point as well, which we'll, we'll get to when we discuss the film here in a bit, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think that the, you're right. The, the characters in the comics aren't like as closely linked to Peter as they are in the movies, but it makes more sense in a movie In a comic. You don't have to do that necessarily, especially the way comics were written back in, in the sixties and seventies when the character, you know, made its first appearance, but that was really it. You know, once they, once they came up with the concept, you know, they, they decided this is what it's going to be. It's going to be about Peter and Mary Jane and the Sandman. We're going to work to resolve the storyline with Harry. That's been building since the first film. You've got Sandman is your villain. Although, you know, there was still the plan on turning Harry into the new goblin, but Sandman's the main villain. And of course there were other ideas along the way. At one point, uh, Raimi had worked the vulture into the story. Uh, and he was even, they were even in early talks with Ben Kingsley to play the role, which honestly is, is great casting. Yeah. Uh, and that, it keeps that with that. Really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it keeps with that whole character actor villain thing that Raimi has been doing so far with these movies, but Vulture would eventually be written out as of subsequent drafts. Uh, but it, it, that's basically the story that Raimi had settled on at that point. It's kind of crazy. Vulture must have lasted pretty far along because even in uh, stuff I was reading, Thomas Hayden Church references him a good yeah. bit as part of the story when he came on board. He said that he remembers like thinking about the that there there was a scene with him. I specifically remember they made like a 
a handshake deal to to get out of prison. Basically, they're like cellmates or something. Hmm. Well, they had everything planned out in a way that they thought was pretty satisfactory, right? This is a great way to move forward and and do a, a third act in this trilogy. And then Avi Arad comes in and screws it all up. Ah! <laughs> I'm only saying that I kind of half jokingly, you know, when people talk about the behind the scenes struggles on Spider-Man three, Avi Arad tends to be painted as the villain. You know, he's this producer who comes in and forces his ideas on the director and those ideas end up screwing up the movie. And while that version of the story isn't entirely wrong, it's not undeserved that he's kind of painted as the villain, although he obviously had no villainous intentions. Uh, the full story is a little more complex than that. See, the script that Raimi and his brother were working on featured the character of Eddie Brock, but it only featured Eddie Brock. It did not feature his alter ego, Venom, although, you know, Eddie Brock's inclusion in the script does allow the option for him to be turned into a villain in a future film. It's it's setting things up for later, which is which is not not a bad idea. But Arad convinced Raimi to use Venom as the film's second villain in Spider-Man 3, which was kind of against Raimi's better judgment. You see, Raimi had not grown up with Venom. Uh, we, we've talked about Raimi's background with these comics, and he grew up reading the classic Stan Lee Steve Ditko, Spider-Man comics. So his favorite villains were classic Spidey antagonists like the Green Goblin or the original Sinister Six. You know, you've got Doc Ock, Sandman, Vulture, Mysterio, Craven the Hunter, and Electro. Those are like the guys that he grew up really reading. Okay, but the Justin character, with that knowledge. I like that. But, uh, the character, I do read comic books. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the character of Venom uh, wasn't created until the late 1980s, and he made his first full appearance in The Amazing Spider-Man number 300, which was released in May of 1988, so pretty late in the game. But it didn't take long for Venom to become one of Spider-Man's most popular and most recognizable villains. So, Avi Arad saw how popular Venom had become in the comics and in the animated Spider-Man TV series, but probably most importantly to Arad, he'd also seen just how successful the character was in toy sales. And remember, toys, that's how Arad got into the superhero business to begin with. Yeah. So to him, the character having great toy sales meant more tickets being sold for Spider-Man 3. You know, that's how that translated to him. And the thing is, as much as you want to paint Avi Arad as like a villain for this, uh, he's right. It did translate to more ticket sales. Uh, yeah. We'll discuss box office numbers later on in the episode, but Spider-Man 3 is actually the highest grossing film in the entire series. And that's partially due to the popularity of the franchise itself up to that point. But adding a fan favorite character like Venom into the mix absolutely affected the film's revenue. Even if it might have hurt the film creatively, it did equal box office dollars. Yeah, it just seems like that that was something that kind of hindsight being 2020. Okay, it's it's gonna make money. Yeah, Spider-Man, it's gonna make money. Sure. Let's hold let's hold off. Let's hold off and do that in the fourth one. Yeah, when, <laughs> let's, when... let's let's tee it up and then knock it out of the park. Exactly, the exactly. Uh, but Ar Arad managed to convince Raimi to include Venom because he he basically convinced Raimi that this is what the kids want. This is what the fans want. They want to see Venom and they love Venom. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, people did want to see Venom, but I think people wanted to see Venom done properly, yes. you know. Uh, but Raimi, again, against his better judgment, he went along with it, despite not liking the character of Venom at all. Uh, and you can feel that, I think, in the film. You can feel that he kind of just doesn't care about that character very yeah. much. Uh, so yeah. in, in 2015, Raimi appeared on the Nerdist podcast, and he said, quote, 
I tried to make it work, but I didn't really believe in all the characters, so that couldn't be hidden from people who love Spider-Man. If the director doesn't love something, it's wrong of them to t- to make it when so many other people love it. I'm with you that it's easy to paint a rod in a bad lighting, but uh, he he's 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 looking out for Marvel's interest too. Like sure. he's 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 looking out for that, and 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 we've seen him. We we talked about it in like part two. That, he takes up in certain points where we agree with him, like with Doc Ock being a young love interest for Mary Jane. You know, right. so like he, he he's got I good ideas too. He he obviously just wants Venom because I mean we 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 mentioned it briefly in like part two, but like people were asking for Venom. Venom's mm-hmm. like the most demanded. As much as I wouldn't, I don't know why I don't want to admit this, but I I I think that it's kind of true. Like Venom might be the most popular villain that Spider Man has. I think hey. he is. I mean, I think at this point in time, Venom is probably the most popular Spider Man bad guy. Yeah, and uh, I listened to Arad talk about this, and for him, the reasons he wanted Venom so badly was, you'll notice he never says toy sales, but you're right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he never specifically says it. But it's when implied. asked by Grant Curtis in one of the commentaries uh, why he was so adamant that now was the right time, he says, uh, quote, I think for me, one, Venom represents the ultimate danger for Peter and Spider-Man because the symbiote transfers everything, all knowledge about Peter to the wearer. Uh, two, the way we would get there is by him being a mirror image of Spider-Man. He could be how Spider-Man ended up on a bad day, a cautionary tale. And in all fairness, I think Sam is an early Spider-Man lover. Venom came in later, and it took him a little while longer to get his arms around the character. It's a known fact. The other thing, though, is by movie three, we needed newness. We needed stuff that really set the movie ahead and apart. Venom is arguably the biggest, most interesting villain Spider-Man has. And Alvin Sargent was instrumental, at least for me, in showing that Venom can be fascinating. And originally for me, Eddie Brock wasn't, but he made Eddie Brock fascinating. Mm-hmm. And uh, ar- arguable, but... <laughs> you, you can tell from interviews after like sam just isn't sure but like he kind of yeah. settles in he really yeah. wanted peter to have to deal with you, you mentioned this but like his whole thing I, I think what he tried to do was like he had this idea of like there was this pride aspect of being spider-man uh what you touched on i, I found a quote like sam say the most important thing for peter right now has to be that he learns this whole concept of him as the Avenger or him as the hero, he wears this red and blue outfit with each criminal he brings to justice. He's trying to pay down this debt of guilt that he feels about the death of Uncle Ben. He considers himself a hero and a sinless person versus these villains that he nabs. We thought it would be a great thing for him to learn a little less black and white view of life and that he's not above these people. And so there was that like sinless thing. He wanted him to learn there's the the mix. You, you talked about this, but anyway... Yeah. Clearly, he worried less about trying to deliver that story subtly now. Uh, he was just like, right. well, we got the black suit. We'll just, uh, that'll be a shortcut. It. It's a shortcut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, another addition to the story that came at the suggestion of Raimi's producers was the inclusion of Gwen Stacy. Uh, see, the Raimi's had written a scene where Peter and Mary Jane go out to dinner. There's another woman there in the restaurant. She recognizes Peter, maybe gets a little flirty with him, and then Mary Jane gets jealous. It was actually Laura Ziskin who suggested that they make that woman Gwen Stacy. And so Raimi told Ziskin, it's like, I don't think I should because, this is a direct quote, by the way, I I, I don't think I should because really Gwen was introduced before Mary Jane in the comic books, and now I'm introducing her later, and she's not even in high school anymore. She's in college. And I'm afraid if I introduce Gwen, the fans will have all these expectations, which we're not going to deliver in this picture. Meaning, spoiler if you haven't read like a 40-year-old comic, but... 
Gwen Stacy dies in the comic books uh, before Mary Jane's ever in- introduced. So that's what he's referring to as, as far as fan expectations. But Ziskin was able to convince him uh, essentially by saying, hey, we're putting her in here. Yeah, there might be expectations from fans, but we might be able to meet those expectations with a later movie, even if the timeline's a little screwy. So Raimi went along with it again against his better judgment and rewrote the character to be Gwen, St- uh, Gwen Stacy. So at this point, the story features Sandman, Eddie Brock and Venom both have to be established uh, along, along with their origin stories and the symbiote. Uh, Harry Osborn, who needs to turn into a supervillain himself at some point. The continuation of Mary Jane and Peter's story and the inclusion of a possible second love interest with Gwen Stacy. Well, that's too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, to- it's a lot. <laughs> it's way too much. Uh, so as he was trying to turn all of these ideas into a script... Alvin Sargent found that there was so much being crammed into the story that he might actually need to split it in half, uh, turning it into two movies. And he toyed around with this idea for a little while, but it was eventually dropped because he couldn't figure out how to create a successful climax for what would have been the first film. Because the first film still has to function as its own film. Yeah, I mean, and that's saying something. When you've got a multiple Oscar-winning writer who looks at what you're trying to do and basically is just like i don't know throws his hands up like i don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know guys i yeah. got nothing <laughs> I, I don't know if i can do anything with this that that should have just sent off so yeah, many that, alarms that's a red flag so many red that's flags. a red flag yeah <laughs> and supposedly he worked his ass off to try to figure it out but damn uh apparently one example i mean there was some stuff in there that you could have played with like i had an early draft of it i was reading about had like more about the symbiote like john jameson from the second one he would come back and he had been to space he comes back in the symbiote's a stowaway there but because sergeant's having to trim all the fat now like he's just like oh it's a fucking meteor lens yeah yeah which is so (laughs) goddamn lazy (laughs) you know like that having john jameson bring it back on uh, by mistake ties it into the rest of the franchise, makes more sense. Honestly, if you're going to split it into two movies, you make the first film, you can introduce the symbiote in that way, probably. You can uh, introduce the character of Eddie Brock, but still have the main focus be on the Sandman. And then the finale can just be Spider-Man stopping the Sandman, but you've still got this thing in the in the back of your mind where you know this black goo has is on Earth. You know that Eddie Brock is is trying to you know screw things up for, for Peter. And you can move all the other Venom stuff into the fourth movie, like where he actually turns into Venom and gets the black Spider-Man gets the black suit and all this stuff. You know, you could have just made this a story about finishing up the Harry arc and doing the Sandman stuff. And then it it would have solved a lot of problems, to be honest. And I've never won. I haven't won two Oscars, but I could tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I don't know. Sergeant's just doing his job. He's just like, it's, it's a lot of people just doing their job. And, well, uh, he's also got people that he has to answer to. A bunch of bootlickers is what's going <laughs> on here. And if Abi Arad is insisting that Venom's in this movie, well, you can't take him out necessarily, you know. And 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 I and I'm not with like I think Venom's cool too. As much as some guy, I was going to say the next guy. I mean, there's some people that are way too bullish on Venom and Carnage and all this other bullshit, but. But I do like Venom fine. And, yeah, I'm fine with Venom. And, and so, yeah, I mean, he can be cool. And I don't even agree with the rod. I think the whole idea of Eddie Brock, I mean, the, the story is similar in the comics. And you could make that into something where you care about him yeah. as a character, too. It can, it can be done. It could be yeah. done. 
Well, with the addition of several new characters, this also meant that Raimi had to find several new actors to fill out the cast. So, of course, he's got all the people, you know, all the regulars from the first film. I won't bother listing them all. At this point, you've listened to these episodes and you know you know who plays Spider-Man and Mary Jane. But in the role of Sandman, Raimi cast Thomas Hayden Church, who had recently impressed Raimi uh, with his Academy Award-nominated performance in Sideways. Of course, before Sideways, he was more of like a TV sitcom guy. He was on Wings and Ned and Stacy and, and stuff like that. Uh, Two for Grace, another sitcom guy, was cast as Eddie Brock, and Bryce Dallas Howard was cast in the role of Gwen Stacy, uh, and she was cast pretty late in the game, a couple weeks before the shoot began. She she was cast on like January fourth or something, and they started shooting like January sixteenth. Like she had very little time to Ooh. to get ready for this. Uh, and it's funny, she actually found out later that she had been two months pregnant while they were filming Spider-Man 3, including, I mean, she does a lot of stunts in this movie. Like she's on mm-hmm. harnesses and stuff like the scene with the, with the crane knocking off the floor of the building. Like she was, she's dangling 30 feet in the air from a harness uh, oh, yeah. while two, two months pregnant and had, she had no idea. She said that, I, I mean, understandably kind of freaked her out when she found out later on. That whole scene is so nutty. And another nutty thing about it is, so one of the producers, Joe, uh, Caracello, he was on that sequence and he was he was an executive producer on Spider-Man 2. I don't think we ever mentioned him, but there's there's always so many people involved in this. Anyway, that that scenes of the office, the the physical interior stuff especially, that whole sequence had come and gone from the script several times apparently and by the time it was filmed, this was at the end of the shoot and like yeah. then they were like we don't have enough time to do this. Apparently, what Joe was good at was crutching time and figuring out answers. So they said, he told them, just get me first and second unit both to be on it. And we'll film part of it at day and part of it at night. And we'll just like first unit signs out, second unit signs in. And they're like, well, the actors, they can't work like 24 <laughs> hours a day, Joe. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so how did they fix that? You say, well, Bryce Close. Dallas Howard and Steve Valentine, you're on the right track. Bryce Dallas Howard and Steve Valentine, who was placed the photographer of that scene, did work a lot for that. But all the other actors in that scene are twins. Are they really? <laughs> yes. I love that. So wow. That is so nice. strange. <laughs> so they they just, uh, yeah, they would like side out and their twins would side in. Wow. And, uh, That's pretty funny. Uh, Steve Valentine, the guy who placed the photographer in that, uh, when he's with Bryce Dallas Howard there, she says, she realized, this guy used to be a magician. He performed at my second birthday. <laughs> well, that, that was a random weird story. That is a random weird story. Uh, well, with all also, these... uh, oh Jesus, I, I got, I got one more. I got one more. <laughs> also weird enough. I know these could be fun facts, but I got other fun facts. So you're getting them now. You can you uh, can sprinkle fun facts all th- throughout the episode. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got plenty of this casting shit. So, so Sam says though they're they're shooting one day uh, on that scene, and he's directing her, and he's turning around to talk to somebody, and Rod Howard is there. He's like, "What the? F- <laughs> What's happening here?" Bryce says he was on a uh, post production nearby doing the Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a big fan of Sam Raimi and enthralled, so he snuck himself in and uh, wanted to watch. To be fair, if you're Ron Howard, you don't have to sneak yourself in. They're just going to let you in. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) Uh, Raby says he was a fan of Ron Howard's too, enough that he said, yeah, that's that's really neat to hear, but he was freaking me the hell out the whole time. Probably nervous. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you know, back to Thomas Hayden Church, just talk about the casting a little bit more. Like Laura Ziskin and Avi Arad say they were at a this is per them, they were at the broadcast critics awards for Spider-Man 2. They got nominated for most popular movie or something. And Thomas Hayden Church was nominated as a best actor or something for Sideways. Right. And they say that when he won, when he walked up there, his look, his delivery, he cried when he gave his speech. Laura says they knew right then. They were like, that's who we want. We got to talk to Sam. They said they hit up Sam, who had seen Sideways, but also said back in 2000 or right right before, he's like, I, I almost cast that guy for the gift. Like He was like, I oh, liked wow. him then. He was like, yeah, but nice. something didn't work out. So on this movie, different than before, Sony started targeting actors. They went after these people more so than they auditioned. Like Topher and Thomas Hayden Church say that they were just randomly called in for meetings at Sony. Same with Bryce Dallas Howard, even guys like James Cromwell, who's in here. Supposedly, the producers saw Topher in, uh, in good company. Now, to his credit, you listen to Topher talk. He knows comic books. I mean, I'll, I'll give him this. He was a nerd from way back. He was talking about reading Spider-Man in fifth grade. He has a signed like McFarlane Spider-Man comic in the first appearance of Venom before he even knew he was even reading for Venom. And uh, so that's kind of wicked. Like to hear him talk about it, he's talking about being like on the set of the Bugle or something, being around J. Jonah Jameson and like Toby. He's like, you know how you go to Universal Studios and they're like, we'll put you in the movies. He's like, that's how I felt. He's like, I'm supposed to be angry in the scene. And I'm like gritting ear to ear. Like, oh my God, I'm on the Spider-Man ride. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like Topher Grace. I've got no problem uh, with him as like an actor, really. Uh, I haven't seen him in a ton of stuff other than this and that 70s show and a couple things that he's popped up in here and there. So I've got nothing against him. I think he seems like a nice enough guy. Although I, I just, he is not, he's just a weird choice for Eddie Brock. Yeah. Eddie Brock's a, a yeah. bodybuilder in the comics. Right. So yeah. like, it's Topher just, it's colored just, his hair and he worked out for like six months. He put on like, I think like 25 pounds of muscle. It doesn't, he said. It where? But where? Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> and it apparently <laughs> fell right off after shooting. I don't know. It, they credit Alvin Sargent a lot with how Eddie would come across, which is apparently just a natural dick, not struggling yeah, with just, anything complex. Right. I don't know. But uh, I will say side note uh, too on, on Topher and Eddie. Eddie is mentioned in the first film, by the way. By he is, yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. And they said, we'll get Eddie on it where they're looking for a photographer who can get pictures. But still, Eddie introduces himself as the new guy here. So continuity, people. <laughs> yeah, continuity. Well, you know, they weren't they weren't planning ahead. It was it was just planned to be an Easter egg back then. I, I reca guess I recalled I recalled hearing somewhere that they had said they cast Topher Grace because he was physically similar to Peter. Toby. Yeah, and, I can see that. yeah, because they wanted him to be that kind of doppelganger type feel that he. Was I mean, it makes a, sense that he was a different version of Peter. Yeah, I mean that well, that makes sense if you're yeah. going in that direction. How but successful it... that came across, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> so a way I know he's nerdy is uh, he actually even says this in one. One interview he talks about that this Eddie is more of a, an amalgam of original Eddie Brock and ultimate Eddie Brock because in mm. in the ultimate you know not to get too nerdy for people who are only interested in movies but there's the other universe version just like how there's a multiverse in the MCU in the comics there's that but in this other universe Eddie Brock's like same age as Peter like a little bit older but there's a, a whole sequence there where like he he is a skinny dude and he's he's interested in Gwen Stacy also in that universe by the way okay. which there was apparently more of in this and so he get, he's kind of a creep with Gwen Stacy and stuff like that anyway Bryce Dallas Howard sorry if I'm talking too much but I, I love the casting stuff uh, <laughs> Bryce Dallas 
Howard apparently just came in for one of those meetings with everybody. And this was like, they were just meeting actresses, trying to fill some parts. Like I heard Scarlett Johansson, Elisha Cuthbert, but Toby told the story that they were basically just supposed to be introduced. Apparently like Laura Ziskin, like saw them talking to each other and comes over with a script. So they like read together and they're like, all right, thanks for coming by. Blah, blah. She leaves. And like Laura Ziskin's like, well, that's that part's over. And uh, (laughs) so they just like knew they were like, everybody's like, all right, cool. I mean, I love, Bryce Dallas Howard. I think she's great. I mean, she, she's never become like a huge movie star. She's big enough to where people know who she is, but I love her in this. I think she is very charming as Quinn, as Gwen Stacy. It, it's all, it was always uh, ironic to me that they cast a, um, a redhead as, as Gwen Stacy and a blonde as, as Mary Jane. Yeah. It's <laughs> super, super odd. And then I do, I do want to talk for just a minute about Thomas Hayden church real quick, because this guy, this is another example of Raby has nailed it every time with these villains. And I feel like it's, it's a damn shame that Thomas Hayden church doesn't get more credit because of this movie being so maligned. Like he is, I think he's fantastic in this role. He's, he is very good in this role. I, I would absolutely agree with that. He Thomas Hayden church has this great sadness in his in his face that he can convey yeah. that really fits in, in, this in character. his voice too mm-hmm. in his he's, voice too he's, and he and he is really this like everyman kind of guy yeah. as well which is why he worked so well on like in, in sitcoms especially on wings i don't know if you guys watched that when you were kids but he played oh, lowell yeah. the air, airplane mechanic or whatever yeah. and that was kind of his breakthrough he was like this dumb guy is basically that was his character he's he was the dumb guy but he was all he's always had that kind of like sad buster keaton thing going on with his face you know and which, it's perfect for this role. Yeah, which is, you know, like like you said, it's perfect because that's exactly what Sam Raimi's looking for. And and this guy busted his ass. Apparently, he put on like almost 30 pounds of muscle, you know. Now, you can tell in him, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's ripped. <laughs> yes. uh, apparently, he, he says Sam gave him a kid's book, like a little children's nursery rhyme book about uh, a Jewish folklore character called the, the Gollum. Yeah, he says he based a lot of his character on that this misunderstood monster. He also mentions Frankenstein and King Kong mm. as like references of like the feeling you should get with the, yeah. with that character. Poor guy though, he got the shit beat out of him into this thing with like getting his face ground up against a train. Not a real train, but it was like plexiglass or something. He oh, you mean covered. they didn't they didn't put his face against a real train? <laughs> they did, but they did <laughs> cram his face against plexiglass really hard and. Uh, <laughs> They, they did like that sewer scene where he gets the water on him, supposedly yeah. at the time was like one of the biggest water dumps they've ever done on a movie in history huh. or something. And wow. he got that uh, on, Tom, uh, on the Tonight Show. He he tells a story about there was the part where in the subway he goes to swing to punch Spider-Man and he ends up punching that chunk of wall out of the way mm-hmm. that the effects crew said, well, the brick in the middle is where you want to hit. Uh, upper and lower ones are weird, but you hit the middle and that's foam. And so he goes to do it, but they had not replaced the brick yet with oh, the no. fold in the scene. Oh, so no. he forgot and he <laughs> broke three knuckles on his head. I don't know. You got to be in shape on a Raimi movie. Uh, Cause there's, <laughs> there's still stories in this one about like, you know, with the spitballs and the light shining in Toby's eye. Like when he's mm-hmm. sitting in the classroom, that's Raimi. Of course. Harry, <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> James Franco talks about like when he's fighting Spider-Man and he like throws him against the wall and bricks fall on his head. That's Raimi. He's up there throwing mm. bricks down, like he'll fall <laughs> bricks down in his head face. And uh, uh, my favorite Thomas Hayden Church story though, was that he felt he, he needed some weight to his character because all the early stuff you see of him is like this sappy stuff he thought. Mm-hmm. So he was like, Sam, can I, I got to do something mean. And so he said, he literally went up to Sam Raimi and was like, 
I have a really inappropriate suggestion, but is there any way I could punch a dog? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so he does. <laughs> when he's chasing him up against the fence, that dog runs up and he grabs it and punches it in the face. He said he thinks the other dogs saw that, even though it was a puppet. He, said they, he thinks they saw that because he said the other dogs, when he's trying to climb the fence, kept biting his foot. Like, oh, they were mad at him. Biting him. <laughs> he said he said he'd stop it and be like, "Can we? Can we not have the dogs bite me for real?" And they're like, uh, "Yeah, sure." And he said, "But we, you know, nine out of ten takes that we do on that thing, a fucking dog bit me." <laughs> and, he's like, and he's like and sam's there this was on the commentary and sam's there and he's like did you see that sam i bet you didn't know that till now and he's like i didn't know that thomas and he's like it's because you were getting cappuccino during this whole shoot <laughs> and he was like and i bet sam's probably sitting over there like was i though <laughs> I'll, I'll shut up about casting after just mentioning this real quick too cliff robertson's final role it was yeah. good to see him back don't realize that but he uh he died shortly after this i think it's a few years after this yeah. i think he died in 2011 but this was still his last role that he ever filmed yeah, yeah. cliff robertson in these movies always uh looks to me like johnny cash in the hurt video you're yeah. right oh my like, god every time i see him i was like he looks like johnny cash right before johnny cash died i love these like little cameos like like him coming back though it gives that depth like uh yeah oh uh camera girl is emma Ramey. that's sam Ramey's daughter Oh, yeah. Uh, what about the kids who say like "wicked cool"? Those two little kids. Those have got to be oh, somebody's brothers or sons I did not or hear, but maybe <laughs> I know Cause, at the because uh, they are not professional actors. I will tell you that <laughs> at the uh, at the performance when like Mary Jane realizes she's getting replaced and the other mm-hmm. girls singing or whatever. The person at the piano, like standing there giving notes, is Christopher Young, the yeah. guy who's the composer. The composer, yeah. Uh, if you look at the funeral for Harry, Flash Thompson's there. Joe Manganiello. He's he's hanging out. We, we will never say his name correctly. Let's just no no no. A hundred percent not. <laughs> Joe uh, Manganello. Manganello. That's right. I don't think that's right. It's Manganello. I don't think it is. Yes, it is. He's I a think we're missing guy. Like I've seen tons of interviews with him. It's Joe I Manganello. Think, I don't think it is. <laughs> um, it never hit me that Willem Dafoe was in all of the movies. All like, of them. It, He's yeah. in every single one. He must be tied for like second, yeah. I guess, in appearances in Spider movies because I think Holland probably has number one now. Well, but, if you uh, count the Avengers movies and things like that, yeah, yeah. But like Toby and Willem Dafoe show back up in the universe later. But yeah. our boy Bruce Campbell's back in a cameo, finally a sympathetic I... character. <laughs> um, it's a great cameo. <laughs> yeah, Laura Ziskin. This was apparently her idea. Apparently, when she was starting out in Hollywood, she was working on the Newlywed Game. Hmm. And uh, that was one of her first gigs when she was young. And every night she said she auditioned, she'd have to audition like 10 couples to get on that show. And she said literally nine out of 10 of those couples would come in and they would have the same story. One couple would come in and be like, well, you'll never believe how he proposed to me. He, <laughs> I got a glass of champagne and the ring was below, like at the bottom of the glass. It's like, then another couple will come in. Well, my husband did the craziest thing. I got a glass of champagne. (laughs) Let me tell you, as someone who has worked in the service industry for a a very long time, that is the, don't do that to anyone that works in a restaurant. Don't put that weight of like your fucking proposal on a service Uh industry worker. I remember working at at PF Chang's years ago and somebody wanted to, they, they had like a, custom fortune cookie that had a proposal the on the little fortune thing and they wanted us to like bring that out to them at the end of the meal i'm like that is 
this is not my responsibility. Like this is your thing. I don't the also, make or break also, of your proposal. Here's the thing. If you're proposing to your potential spouse in a PF Chang's, you're getting divorced in two years. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what's going to happen. Maybe it's her for more relationship advice. Please tune in. <laughs> I will say this, Justin Bishop. <laughs> we always kind of dance around him, but I will say this: James Franco in this movie. I actually watching, and I have to give him props that I think he did a great job. I, I finally think he gets a chance to shine in this one a little bit like, uh, towards the end, especially. I think. I think um, he just he's he's charming when he needs to be, and sympathetic yeah. when he needs to be, and he. he I looks... mean, Franco's a, a a great actor. I mean, you know, we you can say what you you want to about his some of his personal life stuff uh and you would be w- within reason to but as an actor he is really good i mean i i rewatched spring breakers recently which is probably my favorite thing that he's done as far as like his his role in it and he is like he's just incredible he's very good yeah and i think we touched on some of that in like the first one about him being a dick but oh yeah, this guy apparently he like learned how to make a perfect omelet ahead of that cooking scene. And uh, Grant Curtis had a great story about them doing the twist. Like that was something uh, Franco was not prepared for. He did not have to know how to do the twist. And like, <laughs> apparently they were shooting the hospital stuff at the same time, like with Toby and Sam was over there and he came over to the apartment set to make sure that Franco and Dunce knew how to do the twist. Franco did not. So Sam Raimi had to teach James Franco how to do the twist. <laughs> and so Let's see Grant that yeah great curtis is like it is an image that will never leave my brain it's like it's so frightening sam raimi doing the twist i love it uh, he they they tell this story too which i thought was really stupid that apparently like in the second movie they were talking to franco about doing the next movie and sam was like telling him oh yeah we're gonna have you live in a high rise and you're gonna be like a playboy villain and we're gonna have you're gonna have women underneath you that are like the goblets You'll be the Greek goblet of the (laughs) and all this. And they were disappointed that that's not really what he did. Yeah, I'm I'm not. I don't think that they made a good decision. That's one of the few good decisions they made on this movie. (laughs) Well, anyway, so that's all with all these new cast members. Surely there's some crossover with Todd's preferred cinematic universe, which is (laughs) Star Trek. Yeah, we've got a few folks we've mentioned. previous episodes returning we've got bill e rogers tim storms and of course uh kirsten dunst uh but hardcore trekkers will of course recognize james cromwell uh who's playing captain stacy uh he did three episodes of next gen he did season four episode six of deep space nine and three appearances as the inventor of warp drive dr zephram cochran that was in star trek first contact enterprise and an episode of lower decks well, we, and, we, and we, we celebrate James Cobra or sorry, Zach, Jeff from Cochran. I apologize. <laughs> I love James Cro- Cro- uh, James Cromwell, though. And, and that what character, can't any of us say his name. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. We just all had strokes at the same time. <laughs> uh, that character was originally just this like random police officer character who was kind of on the peripheral. And then when they decided to turn the girl in the restaurant into Gwen Stacy, they, of course, rewrote him as Captain Stacy course yeah, yeah i bet no, they would have a gotten a, a i bet they would have gotten a smaller name for the role had it not been captain stacy it wouldn't have been oh, someone sure. as big as james cromwell i did it again yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh then we've got becky ann baker as mrs stacy she was in season three episode seven of star trek voyager sacred ground uh, which was directed by robbie mcneil aka tom paris 
And then we've got Terrell Clayton as one of the test site technicians. He did three episodes of Voyager. Greg Daniel as the precinct detective. He was in season six, episode 21 of Voyager. Live Fast and Prosper, which sounds like a Star Trek crossover with the Fast and Furious franchise. It does. That's for the real hardcore <laughs> Trekkers. Honestly. Exactly. Yeah, it's all about family. That was that episode was directed by LeVar Burton, a.k.a. Jordy LaForge. And then last but not least, Ron King. I was not familiar with this guy until I looked him up. He's play, He plays one of the jazz club musicians. So he's in the mix in the back there. But he was actually the farmer in the pilot episode of Star Trek Enterprise. So I think he might be, chronologically speaking, the first human you see in Star Trek. So fun little bit there. And that's everybody in Star Trek. (laughs) Earlier today, my wife was watching this movie Tag. uh, Yeah. Yeah, have you ever seen that? Um, That's fun. Anyway, you randomly just made me think of this because who is it? Is that the character Reggie? There's a scene where they flashback and he's getting a girl to like ride him in the backseat of a car. And she's like (laughs) on him and he's just like, oh yeah, tell me I'm LeVar Burton. Tell me I'm LeVar Burton. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. But it's the first thing I thought of now when you uh, mentioned it just a second ago. <laughs> not reading Rainbow, no. not, uh, <laughs> not Roots. Well, principal photography began on January 16th, 2005. And most of the shoot, like on the previous films, took place in Los Angeles. Although in the spring of 2005, the production actually briefly moved to Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. Uh, it, it was for a couple of reasons. So the greater... Cleveland Film Commission, they offered production space at the city's convention center at no cost. They're like, you can come in. This can be your production offices and stuff. We'll give it to you. You don't have to pay for it. While in Cleveland, they they filmed the fight between the uh, Spider-Man and the Sandman that takes place in the armored car. You know, where they're the armored car barreling through the city, just knocking cars every which way. The reason they chose Cleveland is because of the sheer amount of road space that would have to be blocked off in order to film this scene. It's a very stunt heavy scene and it goes on for several blocks. So they, you know, they obviously would have preferred to do it in New York or Los Angeles, but the city would not let them. Neither one of those cities allowed them to do it. They told them no because they didn't want to block off that much of of their downtown. But Cleveland said, "Hey, you guys can come here." They filmed it on I think it was Euclid Avenue in downtown Cleveland. And the thing is that section of downtown Cleveland was built in the same era as a lot of downtown New York. So the architecture was actually very similar. So it was it made it a lot easier to turn it into downtown New York City. Here's a fun fact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fun fact the, with Todd. Yeah. The the car chase in Winter Soldier was also shot uh downtown Cleveland as well. So it's uh, another another Marvel connection. I thought that uh, just a random neat fun fact. Uh, the, the very first thing they actually shot, I think he said it was like November 2004, was Thomas Hayden Church, the part where he runs from the cops and hides in the back of that truck in the sand. It was uh, not unlike the the early Doc Ock stuff, like we talked about on the last movie. They were doing right. it to test like what they could do and if it would work and that sort of thing uh, before they went much further. But Cleveland, yeah, right after all that was that armored car scene, you know, and they, they, Cleveland like repaved that whole stretch of road for them just yeah, to make it sure to be, it wasn't bumpy. It needed to be like smoother. So the mayor's actually like, we'll just repave the whole thing. Yeah. So they stepped up. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Ohio came through. Uh, good for them. I hate Ohio. <laughs> just in general, <laughs> just as a state, as a people. <laughs> I'm, uh, 
I've been we'll, stranded we'll let, we'll there for know. a long time before, so I always, <laughs> I always say, if you could put an enema anywhere in uh, the United States, it'd be Ohio. I'm pretty sure it'd be Florida. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe Florida's taken over. <laughs> I'm sorry, people of Ohio. The not too distant future, the governor of Ohio sitting in his office. Oh, I got a letter from this podcast. What is this? <laughs> it just says "fuck you." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> from Gary. Yeah, Gary. From Gary. From <laughs> cinema shock what i, I was oh, on and, I was and then on. he's bummed out he's bummed out for the rest of the day oh <laughs> i when i was at a musical theater we we did a tour we were going to new york city to perform actually and we got stuck in ohio it felt like for forever and i remember sitting there and i was like i fucking hate ohio it is the asshole of the United States. There and, are good uh, things in Ohio. You've got the yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Isn't the isn't the NFL Hall of Fame in Ohio as well? Uh, yeah, maybe it is. Yeah. yeah. yeah so is. there's um, some cool stuff there. But some of my friends from that era still to this day, when they find a meme uh, about Ohio or anything, or we just talk randomly, they like, still hate Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after Ohio, the production moved to Manhattan for the remainder of the shoot, which wrapped in July after nearly 100 days of production. That's a long shoot uh, mm. from January to July. That's just principal photography, not including some of the other second unit stuff like what Gary was talking about back in November. That's just principal photography. 100 days, it's a lot. And the shoot was uh, like any big budget shoot like this filled with its share of difficulties. For cinematographer Bill Pope, who you might remember, he was the guy who shot Spider-Man 2 as well, and we've talked about him before he did the Matrix movies. Uh, one of the biggest difficulties for him was filming some of the fight scenes that involve black-suited Spider-Man, Venom, and New Goblin, because those fight scenes all take place at night, and all of those villains' costumes are black. So that, that makes it pretty difficult for a <laughs> photographer to tr yeah. try to figure out a way to light them in a way where you could actually you know, see them on screen. Uh, a quick little sidebar about those costumes, though. Uh, James Atchison, who we've also talked about, he's returned for Spider-Man 3 as the costume designer. And one of his biggest challenges was that black Spider-Man suit uh, and the Venom suit. So for the symbiote Spider-Man suit, he decided to mimic the look of the already existing Spider-Man suit from the first couple of movies. Uh, whereas in the comics, you know, the black Spider-Man suit is all just is solid black with a big old white spider on it. And in the film, Atchison designed basically a black version of the traditional Spider-Man costume, complete with the webbing motif. Uh, and it looks really cool, I think. I, I really like the design of the black Spider-Man suit. But because they did that and put the webbing motif on it, they also had to kind of work that webbing motif into the the final Venom suit. I kept seeing something. I can't find any pictures or like any confirmation of like seeing what it looks like. But apparently they had like a latex kind of black suit that was made for Toby that was supposed to be more like the comic variation of it. And uh, but they decided it looked a little bit too much like a Gip suit or something. <laughs> so, they <were> like, <laughs> so they went with the the blackened version of the the red and blue. Yeah, so. I think they made a good choice on that. <laughs> uh, some things can work on the page that might not work on uh, in, in real life, you know. So Atchison uh, felt that the the Venom suit should have actually been the responsibility of the visual effects department all along, not the costume department. He would later say, "I just didn't think we could do it." We did all sorts of sculpts and everything. We failed terribly. But we also had a director who didn't want to know anyway because he hated Venom and didn't want to do it. <laughs> so he's kind of passing the buck a little bit. Um, I don't think you Venom really suit, feel. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the <laughs> Venom suit is like awful. I do think the face of the Venom suit is pretty awful. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it looks pretty dumb. So Bill Pope 
also had to work closely with Sony Image Works in regards to several shots in the film where a live action element transitions into CGI or vice versa. Uh, there are several moments in the movie where an actor might be close to the camera, then they turn into a CGI character all in like one shot without cutting away, which wasn't really done on the first two films. Uh, and, you know, you might have the character turn away and do something that the actor couldn't do. Uh, the, the scene that it really jumped out at me was one, it's kind of towards the beginning of the movie after, I think it's in the scene where Mary Jane brings her, she, she got, she gets the paper with the bad review and her and Peter are having this conversation. Then he hears something on the police scanner and has a zip out the window. So they're having a conversation. He's looking at the camera. He turns around, puts on his mask and then hops out the window and shoots his, his web and, and swings off of the, the window ledge. Obviously Toby Hooper did not swing off of a window ledge. <laughs> And that God bless Toby Maguire. <laughs> I was going to say, God bless Toby Hooper if he tried. Uh, did I say Toby yeah. Hooper? <laughs> you said Toby Hooper. <laughs> oh, man. You, you guys just see where my brain is at all times. <laughs> I'm not even going to re-record that. I'm just going to leave it in there. No, you want Spider-Man <laughs> okay. versus Leatherface. I know. So. It's, I, I've, I've got that on the brain. Uh, well, nice. Toby Hooper almost made a Spider-Man movie. So, you know, That's it's true. It's a oh, connection. Yeah. Anyway, Toby Maguire <laughs> transitions from on set Toby Maguire into CGI Spider-Man all in one shot, which is honestly very impressive. It looks really good. So that, that was kind of a new technique for this film. And for shots like that, they used a combination of motion control cameras, motion control bases for the actors, blue screen, CG, plate photography, live stunts, on, on and on and on. What looks like a fairly simple shot in the final product is actually an incredibly complex mix of elements that has to go through several units before being completed. Uh, it really makes you appreciate the amount of work that goes into a movie like this. Another thing that they had that, that was kind of a challenge to shoot was the sand. You know, it's one of those things that you don't really think about when you're watching a yeah. movie, something I probably would never have thought about before doing the research for this episode. But even choosing a specific type of sand becomes like a whole thing in a movie like this, uh, because there are hundreds of different types of sand. If you get, you can get sand off the beach in, you know, Hawaii, it's going to look different from the sand in Arizona, which is going to look different from the sand in Myrtle beach, South Carolina, because that one's filled with, um, heroin needles. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a different texture. It's a, different it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't lead into hate for any one state. No, no, we, <laughs> we, we, spread we can even around. hate our own. It's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, we hate our state just as much. <laughs> so, so someone in this movie had to choose exactly which sand to use. That's like a decision that had to be made. Uh, it, it had to be something that read as sand on screen, because some sand might be too fine and might you might not be able to really see the grains on screen once you photograph it it had to be something that moved through the frame easily for scenes where it has to kind of shift and move around and it had to be a texture that could be easily recreated by sony image works using cgi so to uh, to understand how the sand would look on screen they had to conduct a bunch of experiments using about a dozen different types of sand. They would film it splashing. Uh, they would shoot it at stuntmen that were like dressed up as Spider-Man. They'd pour it over ledges. Just anything that the sand might need to do in the movie, they would try to recreate like on, on blue screens. Uh, and the results were then mimicked using CGI to create the visual effects for Sandman. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Then in the end, the primary sand that was used when the non-CGI sand, but this is what they were using on set, was actually dried ground corn or ground dried corn i guess i should say which i don't know is that grits that's grits right <laughs> stone I ground think corn so. yeah uh, yeah but apparently it was used because it had a grain it was it was a, little, a larger grain than just traditional sand so it read as sand a little bit better on screen but it was also extremely lightweight 
compared to real sand. Uh, so mm -hmm. it could be used in scenes where an actor needs to be buried under the sand because you don't want to crush or suffocate your actors. Greg Curtis, uh, producer Greg Curtis, he he is the security guard at the back of the armored car. He says it's ground up corn cobs is how he corn cobs, it. the cobs yeah. themselves. All right. Yeah, that's what he says. But so not grits. So not as tasty, I guess. It makes for a better story if we're going with like a Southern Spider-Man who's you know <laughs> fighting. <laughs> Since like five minutes ago, I've been uh, still picturing Sandman with like heroin needles poking out of him. So, <laughs> but yeah, it is weird to hear him talk about it because he says like in the back of the thing, he's like, oh, this is ground up corn cobs because, you know, I got covered in 400 pounds of it. That's easier than 400 pounds of sand. And I'm like, 400 pounds is 400 pounds, bro. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's like that. Would you rather carry 400 or like 100 pounds of bricks or 100 pounds of feathers or whatever? It's, it's still 100 pounds. Yes, 100 pounds. <laughs> well, on the uh, visual effects side of things, Scott Stockdike stepped in as the film's visual effects supervisor. Now, he had previously worked alongside visual effects designer John Dykstra on the first two Spider-Man films. He won an Academy Award for his work on that alongside John Dykstra. They both won an Academy Award for their work on Spider-Man 2. Uh, and when Dykstra uh, declined to work on Spider-Man 3 in favor of a, uh, a Hot Wheels movie for McGee that never came <laughs> to be, I don't. I mean, he must just be really into cars, I guess. Uh, mm. But once he stepped down... Stock Dyke took on a leadership role in the film's uh, visual effects department. Dykstra dodged two bullets then. He wasn't yeah, in I guess so. the Hot Wheels. And he <laughs> I mean, let's not this. judge a movie before it's made. You know, the Hot <laughs> yeah, Wheels that, movie. That's fair. A that's Hot fair. Wheels movie by McGee could have been a masterpiece. We never <laughs> that's, know. That's McGee's <laughs> a hard worker, so I, I don't know. Like They spent weeks just making sand do anything you could think of. They said, like, making waves, burying people in it. It's insane to think about this, but the first Sandman transformation took something like six months to make. Uh, it makes it Jeez. even more insane when you think about the fact that they also had to include Venom in all this. And yeah. Don't don't get me wrong. Even dumber to think about is both characters. I would say probably have like similar abilities, similar enough abilities. Yeah. So we Too go similar from, to be in the same movie. Yeah, exactly. We go from two movies that made insane amounts of money that just used prosthetics and practical effects as much as they could to now two CGI heavy villains, two characters who can't time. be who basically can't be created without heavy cgi use exactly i mean when i was listening to the commentary they they asked scott what what did you say to us when we asked you how you were going to do it and he was like i said uh we're gonna hire a lot of smart people and have them work many hours <laughs> he said the birth of sandman took like 37 terabytes of data to get done for two minutes of footage while the other movies entirely Never got over four terabytes. Wow. Um, and, and it wasn't, I mean, they just went bigger on everything. They tried to go bigger on everything because it wasn't even just Venom and Sandman, by the way. Like, Sandman always wanted, apparently, like, one of his big things for part one is he wanted an aerial joust with the Goblin and Spider-Man going through the city, and they just couldn't get it done in the original, supposedly. So now they were determined they were going to give him that. And same with the final battle. Sandman uh, originally, apparently, planned for Goblin and Spider-Man to fight on a skyscraper at the end of the movie hmm. and they they just couldn't make it happen. Now, I will say Scott Stiz deck stock did stock dyke. Sorry. They did use like practical overlaid with CGI where they could do it. It's just hard with like Sandman and Venom on a lot of that stuff. But I think in this movie over 1000 people worked on the film. Some put in like over oh. 8000 hours to and they made like software that didn't even exist yet. They had like five units going at one time at one point. Interestingly, we we 
we've talked about like how Sam is so detailed with his storyboards. And by the way, he'll say sometimes him and Bill Pope will, when they get at a certain point in a scene, they'll abandon the storyboards. So they're not beholden to them, but uh, it's a good guide still though. You know, he says that Toby was actually complimenting it on this. He was like, you, you elevated a lot of people to really come into their own because he was saying that Sam would, when he needed more units to go out and shoot things, a lot of times he would just hire the storyboard artist to direct the scene. Well, yeah, they had something like seven units going at once and, and Sam Raimi having to zip between back and forth all the time. Like that's that's got to be an incredibly difficult way to direct. Yeah. What do you guys think about the the Sandman? Like as far as the visual effects on the Sandman, do you do you think they pulled it off? Like that that's something for me when I watch this. There are some scenes where I think it looks really good, uh, where I think it still kind of holds up. And there are some scenes where it just doesn't work for me. Like it feels like it feels like the CGI looks worse in this than in the movies that were made before this, which is not how it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of time it is Sandman related. I think most of the Venom stuff actually still looks pretty good. Uh, the the black, the way the black goo is like animated, I think actually looks pretty cool. But Sandman, for some reason, there are moments where it just doesn't quite work. I think I don't like the giant kaiju Sandman at the end. I think it looks bad. I think the design of it is bad to begin with. And I think the execution yeah. is kind of bad. And I there's one moment in this one that really stood out to me this time. After that fight on the subway and he falls into the water and turns into like mud. And then later when he kind of reforms coming out of the water, it looks very bad. It's very bad CGI for a movie that costs what this movie costs. For me, it just doesn't hold up in a lot of the scenes. So I was curious if I, if I was crazy or if you guys felt the same way. No, I'd, I'm right there with you. There's the, just like you said, you know, there's scenes where it does work. But there's a lot where it's just kind of like, oh, Thomas Hayden Church's performance really helps a lot. Yeah, but he looks yeah. like shit. But yeah, he, yeah. yeah, he ends up looking like shit. No, I meant real I, life. Oh, okay. Let's, let's, now you're just being rude. <laughs> so Gary's going to send a letter to uh, the state of Ohio and one to Thomas A. Church. Yeah, yeah fuck you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It, it's ridiculous that it doesn't look as good as it probably should, considering how much they spent on this movie, money wise. Yeah. Let alone all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the effects definitely don't age well. The age of like high def. Uh, you could, yeah, you can see through a lot of this stuff a lot more. But I mean, in on one hand, I want to give it to that. And then on the other hand, I'm like, well, you know, we didn't have as much of that problem in Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man right. 1. I mean, there are uh, still moments like when Doc Ock is carrying MJ up the the building, like, and it's all CGI. It's, they look kind of rubbery and stuff. I think we talked a little bit about that on the last one. But yeah. it, you don't have that problem as much on this one, although there are a couple of moments. But even like the green screen stuff in, like, I, I really like the battle between Peter and and uh, Harry, the first one where there was where they end up zooming through the buildings and stuff like right. the, the alley. But some of the blue screen or green screen stuff that they're doing during that scene is kind of bad. Uh, and it might just be because now I'm watching it in 4K and the flaws are more obvious than it might have been when I saw it on a movie screen, you know, in 2007. I think I think some of it's got to be that because like I feel like and I, I think it may have been the falling scene that you were talking about or something. There's that and there and even in that fight with Harry, there's moments where like they go up against a, a screen. Uh, mm-hmm. This may be exactly what you're saying, but it's almost like you can see the outline of them. Yeah, like a exactly. little bit too much. And yeah. it's like yeah. you can tell just, they're standing on a green screen. Yeah, it's you know, just so it, weird yeah. how much there's it a disconnect. Out. Yeah, yeah there's a the coloration is off or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really strange. Now, Uh, I will say people can keep that in mind. 
but and, and they should keep it in mind because uh I, I feel like some people would shit on this now but some of the scenes still are pretty incredible to me like uh some because sometimes it's more than just how good realistic it looks that birth of sandman scene is to me it's like emotional and amazing like the score and the feel Mm -hmm. like him reaching for the locket his hand going through it the feet breaking the hand for all that stuff like that i love that scene oh no there's stuff in this movie that works and when we get into like our when we really dig into our discussion on this i think i want to make sure that we point out some you know i don't want us just to be shitting on the movie the whole time (laughs) Because there, there is stuff that works in it. It's just kind of fun. To, it's easy. It's a, this movie's an easy target, but right. uh, you know, but there are there are things that work about it, which kind of makes the fact that the whole movie doesn't work even more of a bummer. Right. Uh, oh, before we move on, another little fun bit of sand related trivia that I found. So there, there's a fight scene. It's on the one on the armored car. Now, Spider-Man punches through Sandman's chest, you know, uh, and his, his arm like goes through him all the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to do that, they had an amputee martial arts expert named Baxter Humby. He took uh, Toby Maguire's place during the filming of that. Uh, it could because he, he had been amputated just below the elbow. Uh, shortly after birth, I think his like umbilical cord got wrapped around his arm and cut off the circulation or something weird. And he had to, uh, as a baby, right after he was born, had to have his arm amputated. But he then went on to become a martial artist, and he has won several world championships in uh, kickboxing and Muay Thai. Uh, and he's also appeared in several films, usually in stunt roles where they need an amputee. Uh, he's played you know, he's played a zombie on The Walking Dead, stuff like that, you know. Uh, but he's also had a recurring he had a recurring role as a corrupt Mexican official in the sixth season of The Shield, which is also kind of fun. I know Gary, you just started watching The Shield, right? I, I'm watching that show now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so good. It's for the it's first like, time, Gary. Uh, yeah, first time. Oh wow, great oh. great show. But look uh, out for I'd him see- when you get to season six. I think he's in three oh. or four episodes. Yeah, I'm going to be looking for him. Yeah, I he'll, looked be the up guy, he'll be the guy with one arm. I looked up <laughs> oh, this guy. Okay. It's pretty crazy. Like, you see him in his fight scenes, or like, not his fight scenes, but like his, his matches. Like, he has the boxing glove over. On like, his nub. nub. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> wild. Does. All right, so real quick, before we move on to the next section, let's talk about some fun facts. I know this is the section I'd probably throw these in because I ain't got no place else to fit the rest of this shit in. So <laughs> we'll, we'll do it here. Just noticed, I was very disappointed by Spider-Man 3 that there is no scene of Spider-Man attempting to save people and eventually being confronted by the villain in a burning building in this movie. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was the, if you look at Harry's lair or, or the Greek goblin lair, whatever you want to call it, there is a mask sitting on a stand in there and it is golden slash orange colored. It was going to be a yep. hobgoblin mask. That oh, was yeah. the original concept. Well, that's that fun. Had. Yeah. He was going to have a glider like his dad too. They started off that way, but snowboarding was real popular. I, I was about time. to say that they just turned it into a <laughs> flying snowboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so which, which can we take a second and just how like did Harry hire a scientist? Because we've established that Harry's dumb as a box of rocks. Well, this was all made by his father. This stuff was this was his I, father's stash. You have to assume yeah, yeah, I guess it was so. his stash. Because I they guess. even do they even do a little pan of the masks and it's like they show uh, one that essentially looks like the mask that Willem Dafoe wears of the goblin face. And they it pans over. We see that a version of that mask, but it's like chrome silver. And then it keeps mm-hmm. panning and you eventually see the mask that Harry ends up wearing in the movie. So you have to assume that those were all just made by, by Harry's dad. Because this was his, right. this was his armory, you know. <laughs> I guess. I mean, the um, mo- it's there in the movie. It's established. Yeah, by the yeah, movie. I guess. You see him walk in a room full <laughs> of goblin shit. 
yeah, yeah he sure. does get all those bombs and stuff so I, I i assumed that was the case it's just all supposed to be shit left over from his dad i don't know how he was going to keep his career going well luckily they wear the same exact size yeah, yeah so. and i guess Bingo. he's got an infinite supply of money apparently so sure yeah whatever mm. another weird thing i noticed that i meant to mention last uh movie but shows back up here is i just love like the little easter eggs they leave throughout the movie like just so simple stuff like if you just want to go back and watch them you just find like all kinds of stuff like from the newspapers on jameson's wall that reference like stuff that's happened in the past or like peter's apartment has a picture of mary jane in it the whole time uh last movie and this movie and it's the picture he took of her at the uh lab at the very the beginning original movie yeah, yeah. Oh, isn't I that special that. That's, That's sweet. I thought that was yeah, sweet. Nice. It yeah. is nice. Uh, <laughs> it's sentimental. Speaking of continuity, uh, how about the uh, the alleyway that they uh, use, like where Peter first learned to use his powers? It's the same alleyway that uh, he gives his suit up in. It's the same alleyway that Harry and Peter fight and land in in this movie. It's the same yeah. fucking alleyway. And stay away from that alley. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Elfman, you know, we talked about Chris Young. Danny Elfman doesn't come back here. I tried to look up more about that, uh, just, and I didn't find much more than the last one, except for uh, Grant Curtis did in one thing mention that Elfman came in at the end of this and like they started talking again or something. Okay. That, uh, really? That he, he collaborated with Christopher Young on some well, stuff, maybe it, uncredited, I guess. Well, no, he, he has a credit on in the opening credits where it says like uh, Spider-Man original themes or something like that by Danny Elfman because the, uh, the main Spider-Man theme is still what he composed for the first two movies. So mm, that makes sense. Um, and also... I was watching, and I just thought this was neat. This is a stupid one, but the Bow Bridge in Central Park where Peter and Mary Jane break up. I was like, I've seen this somewhere before, and it turns out it's been in many, many films, but the one I was thinking of is I watched Highlander not too long ago, and uh, nice. the cloud meets uh, Castigar, his buddy, on that bridge. On that same bridge? Whole, on yeah. that same bridge. That's nice. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> stupid fun facts from Gary. <laughs> that's what we should call the segment stupid, stupid fun facts stupid fun facts with gary <laughs> uh some interesting little things on the script i thought uh were that apparently like kirsten dunce got pissed off with sam raimi at one point because mary jane wasn't gonna be in the taxi at the end fight scene uh it was in the middle of shooting they changed that whole scene and it was supposed to be gwen stacy who was captured and uh up in the air MJ was going to be going to Harry to help persuade him to go help Peter. And it was made late stage. And Kirsten Dunst was unhappy with this. Um, yeah. Wait, she just didn't want to do it or no. She or was she just mad that they changed it. Like she thought she had like, I guess it was like a bigger scene for her or something. Uh, really. Oh, was, more of an acting scene than, an, than yet another damsel in distress scene. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, the, the butler, uh, he apparently was going to, in one version of the script, was going to end up being an illusion, like Harry's good side talking to him. Oh, my God. That's so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but where he gives all that exposition or whatever you'd call it, where he like explains like, oh, you, you, yeah, you call, you call that exposition. You call that bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they also apparently shot this, but originally in the film, Towards the end, where he blows up the symbiote, and uh, and uh, um, Topher 
it uh was all that was gonna be there was a hunk of bones and it was like smoking and uh the they made like the props and everything but apparently it had to be reshot because it uh traumatized some kids at the test audiences (laughs) (laughs) wow and yes i mean i don't know if you guys have seen guardians of the galaxy 3 yet but um there's some stuff in that movie that especially at the end that's like it's pretty gory (laughs) for a pg-13 marvel movie and even when i was watching it i was like Wow, how did, first of all, how did they get away with this with a PG-13 rating? But also, like, some kids are going to watch this and they are going to be scarred. <laughs> <laughs> um, they said they used the James Brown song, People Get Up and Drive Your Funky Soul. Uh, that That's what's playing when Peter's strolling down the street. Uh, when Bully McGuire is strolling down the street. <laughs> uh, they... Uh, that song is played. They said they played that song like live on set, like while he was walking to like yeah, he's got to walk to the beat. They fucking hated that song by the end of. <laughs> I <laughs> bet. Uh, so did we. <laughs> the 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 various, uh Well, no, let me give you this one real quick. Harry's final line in the movie uh, is the same line that he actually uses in the comics before he dies. So I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, it was an homage cool. yeah. to the comics that yeah. like you're my friend, uh, and he's like best friend. And he dies, but apparently that is straight out of the comic book. So wow. that's why that was used. But I did want to say that, uh, you know, cause we haven't talked about the uh, notorious jazz club scene yet, but yes. uh, apparently uh, this all happened because Alvin Sargent had gone to a jazz club or something. And it was just like, <laughs> I want to see it in a jazz Alvin. club. <laughs> so, Thank you. Sam Alvin. Raimi took that and ran with it. Yeah, he sure did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he sure did. Toby learned to play piano and dance, and I wouldn't say he learned to dance, but (laughs) 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 he made the attempt. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about this scene because I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out there. I'm ready for you, online world. I'm ready for (laughs) everybody, Uh, because this scene has been memed about a billion times. It is notorious in this movie. It is talked about as one of the most cringy things to ever happen in cinema, you would think. It's the thing that people think about first when they think about Spider-Man 3. Mm. I fucking love the whole thing. You know what, Gary? (laughs) Gary, let me tell you. I'm right there with you. What? (laughs) Oh, man. I am right there with you. Uh, I will will defend the emo Peter Parker scene to the end of my days. Because, okay, so for me, for me, what it is, it's goofy as hell. Yes, it's yeah. it's silly, it's weird, but in my opinion, that suit, as established in this movie, what it does is it really enhances the, like, inhibited part of you. Like, say mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's like you're drunk without the alcohol. Right. Or the hangover, hopefully. But, like, you're, or you're high or whatever, and you're just acting like a dipshit. Like, you're letting your most dipshit uh, inner self come out. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like Peter Parker is a serial killer deep down inside. No, he's that fucking goofy ass weirdo. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So it's him overconfident and just, just so extroverted. It's ridiculous. And it's just like, he would be, he's a nerd. He's a fucking dipshit. And this is what he would do. Well, that's the thing. Like that, the, the what that scene does, like you're, you're saying the symbiote, enhances 
aspect qualities that already exist within a person. You know, they, they established that. Dr. Kirk Connor says that. He says, especially aggression, but not just aggression. It enhances qualities within the person. So, yeah, is this is this scene cringeworthy? Absolutely. That's not an accident. It's supposed to be cringeworthy. It's supposed to make the audience feel awkward because what it is is that this is the this is Peter Parker's version of what a cool guy would look like. And because Peter, because Peter is such a dork and like his inner cool guy is still an absolute dork. It just shows that Peter has no real notion of what a cool, what, what it is to be cool. Uh, his notion of what is cool is so far removed from reality that it becomes very awkward to watch. Uh, and I think that's what they're going for. And I think they nail it. I don't think like, especially when he's going down the street, doing the like finger guns to ladies, you're not supposed to think that like he is supposed to look cool because even the girls in the scene that he's like doing the finger guns at look at him. Like he's a fucking weirdo. You know, they, they like yeah. look at him like, who the fuck is this guy? Why? Like, they look at him like a loser who's trying to be cool because that's what he is. Uh, yeah, so they, he's not he's not Steve McQueen. He's like a skeezy fucking guy. Like, yeah, it's it's real. He odd. thinks being cool is is uh, brushing his hair down into his face and wearing black. Like you know, uh, so yeah, it's supposed to be kind of goofy and and cringy and awkward. And I think that Sam Raimi and and Toby Maguire kind of nail what they're going for. I think the reason that the, the scene is so maligned is because people don't understand that it's supposed to be bad. You know what I mean? If that, if that makes sense. Like it's supposed to, you're supposed to think that it's ridiculous and that Peter Parker looks like a loser trying to be cool because that's exactly what it is. It's a silly scene and it's dumb, but it's a, it's supposed to be that way. And it well, honestly yeah. seems to be the scene where Raimi is having the most fun in the whole movie. It's it's for real as though people shared a lot because they're like, look how, like you said, like look how cringy this is. And, but the irony is, is that's the point that that yeah. is what they're going for him dancing, walking out of the place after getting his clothes or him going in and showing off. And it does have the darker side to it still at the point where he, you know, knocks Mary knocks Jane Mary to Jane the ground. Down. Yeah, yeah. But you know that he's gone too far. But like you know, and then like it's not like Topher turns into that same person. Topher gets more skeezy and murderous and just weird because he's empowered in a different way. But Todd, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on this. Todd's being very quiet, so I think he we, is. He and is. I saw I saw his face when I said that I agreed with you. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just it just didn't feel. I I think I have a problem separating Peter from the books and Peter from the movies because I think because they did such a good job of really capturing the spirit of the comics with the first two that this feels like such a departure with this scene being the icing on the cake, and so it's you know. Even in the comics, this isn't something that he didn't act that way. He didn't act like that with the black suit in the comics. So it just it felt like such a departure that it was a little jarring after two really great movies to see this. 
I don't think a departure from the comics matters if it's within service of the story that they're trying to tell. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like they did, they, they served the story so well in that first two that this felt like such a departure with them trying to cram all this stuff in and show a different version of Venom. But with this particular scene, it just didn't really jive with, this world that's been established and like to see this very musical scene when you've had two movies with not that. So your it, issue it, is that it it turns into a song and dance thing. Uh, yeah. I was just, I don't of, mind what, that. What are, we, I, what are we doing? I think it's fun. I think it's fun to watch. And uh, anyway, me and Gary are team emo, Peter Parker. Uh, Todd is anti uh, <laughs> Peter emo, Peter Parker. So uh, let us know which team you're on. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's and it's and it's that for me, it, and this is probably what the Mar the MCU now tries to to push back against. The reason Edgar Wright couldn't make his Ant Man or something is that like certain directors are auteurs. Certain directors like have their very specific visions of the way they do things, and so mm-hmm. you watch this movie and you think, I feel like you watch this and you're still thinking of Sam Raimi being the vision behind this and it fits perfectly with something Sam Raimi would do. It does. Yeah. It's exactly more so than a lot of the rest of this movie. Honestly, it feels like the most Sam Raimi scene in the movie. Yeah. And so, you know, for me as a Sam Raimi movie, this fits right in. And uh, I I don't have an issue with it. Yeah. It's not like the comics version, but to me, none of it's like the comics version, honestly, except that the symbiote came from space. So, uh, because I mean, we could talk all day about what makes Venom cool in the comics as opposed to this Venom. But, you know, for this movie in this world that they've established, that suit's like giving you a high that you don't normally have. And I, and I kind of love the fact that they, he, he's so invested in the character of Peter Parker being a loser, not a loser, but like just a dweeb that he is kind of a loser. But, but that this is uh, <laughs> this is this is what he would turn into. Like this yeah. is villainous Peter Parker, and also that should be a testament to Peter Parker as a character too. Yeah, that that's the worst he gets. Like that's right, the, yeah, you yeah. Know, like he's not he's not going to turn into like I said a serial killer. He's ripping people's heads off. He's just like he's kind just of an asshole. Fucking, he's just kind of an ass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. Well, Spider-Man 3 was released on May 4th, 2007, and just like the previous entries, it was an immediate success. The film grossed $151 million domestically during its opening weekend, eventually going on to gross $336 million here in the U.S., making it the highest grossing film of that year, and $894 million worldwide, making it the highest grossing film in the Spider-Man series to date. I was reading through one random article that said this film was reportedly the most expensive film ever made in U.S. dollars, but like a greenlit budget of $250 million, but with the development of the CGI that they did, uh, the shooting on location in New York, per, uh, reportedly at a million dollars per day, the reshoots they had to do, which overran the production schedule eight months uh, it, it says industry insiders speculate a final tab of 350 million or more in production costs alone. And said, if that figure is true, then I mean, at least at the time this was written, the only Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End comes close with a bunch of 300 million. Hmm. 
That was at the time, though. Now a $300 million movie is not not an everyday thing, but, you know, the Avengers Endgame and Infinity Wars, I mean, they were in the $300 million uh, budget range, which is insane to think about. But, <laughs> but yes, at right. the time, that was... Hell, with the size of those casts yeah, alone. <laughs> what, what's going just to their salary? Yeah. So while the movie was a financial success, uh, both audiences and critics gave it much harsher reviews than either of the previous films had received with nearly all of the negative or mixed reviews, noting that the film felt overstuffed with villains and with storylines. Roger Ebert, remember he gave that glowing review for Spider-Man two said it was like the best, uh, the best superhero movie since Superman. That's Richard Donner, Superman. He gave the third film only two out of four stars called it a mess, which, you know, not wrong. (laughs) Uh, Manola Dargis, who uh, is a legendary film critic for the New York Times said that the film uh, quote shoots high swings low and every so often hits the sweet spot but mostly just plods and plods along mm-hmm. so uh luckily this movie's been reevaluated on the internet and I think everyone loves it now <laughs> right Gary <laughs> I love it yeah you know as with a lot of things time heals all wounds and uh... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Some people on the internet still need to take themselves a nap. Uh, let's see. I honestly, I gotta be, I gotta be straight up with you. I, I probably don't even have nearly as many as I normally do, and uh, the ones I have are short. Uh, generally, I, I think I have a couple of lengthier ones, but the. People went off on this movie is the yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of people went off for like paragraphs on this mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> so, yes, there are plenty of people who gave it one star or less. And they it was just like, I can't even read this. I, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we'll start with Olap here. Uh, calls it The title is A Real Letdown, which doesn't seem like a needs a nap kind of review, I guess. Yeah, not, not too hard. <laughs> but... It did start with the line, worst movie I've ever seen at a cinema. Yeah! <laughs> hey, right off the bat. Go. Right off the bat. <laughs> I actually booed, and I never do that. Bad acting, bad story, bad characterization, bad baddies, bad goodies, bad singing, bad dancing. The only redeeming quality was killing off Harry and is an incredibly bad character, so that at the end... In the event of number four, he won't have any screen time to decide what kind of character he should be. Real shame as this movie had such potential. They could have focused more on Venom. Or they could have focused on the Sand Dude. Unfortunately, they didn't either, which resulted in a film that didn't know where it was going except down the plug. Don't waste your money on this film! In all caps. Down the plug? That's what he said. Maybe like, like down the drain or something. See- <laughs> I, uh, I love the idea of this guy just watching this alone at home and booing at his television <laughs> <laughs> not in the movie theater i picture him at home sitting in a recliner just boo boo <laughs> <sighs> uh, i like this uh hokey uh half star excessive dancing painful catchphrases several fight scenes with spider-man wearing his toby mcguire outfit Goblin trades in his glider for a snowboard sponsored by Monster Energy Drink. Sandman ends up looking like Belial from Basket Case. Venom <laughs> couldn't does. even save this one. <laughs> he does look like Belial at the end. But he's... <laughs> That's very funny. And that had, I had, that had not occurred to I, me but yeah. that the, the kaiju uh, I call him kaiju Sandman at the end. He, he that's exactly what he looks like. 
That's funny. Uh, I'm not even uh, mad at these reviews. Usually I yeah. am. Frazier. Yes, it's that Frazier. Oh, Frazier uh, Crane. Frazier Crane gave it half star. <laughs> How did this pass a screen test? Absolutely. That generation's the room. Not that surprising. It's a superhero movie, I guess. Anytime I think about how bad Superman 5, Batman, and Justice League are, I can always remind myself this exists. The worst of all. Nothing about it is redeeming. A half star for a cool Sandman transformation. Otherwise, no stars. Wait, you said Superman 5 and Batman. Did you mean Superman like versus Batman, Batman. I think Batman that is v, what I meant. Batman yeah. v Superman. Because I'm like, Superman 5, does he mean Superman <laughs> Returns? But it's right. ba- it should be Batman first anyway, so he would have written it wrong. Yeah, I just fucked that up. <laughs> Isn't it weird how much this trilogy goes along with Superman, though? Like, if you if you give you the obvious... like we, we I think we talked about Richard Donner, Superman, in the first one. Then in the mm-hmm. second one, he loses his powers mm-hmm. uh, to be with the girl. Then he eventually has to get him back to go save the girl. And in the third one... Richard uh, Pryor shows up. Yeah, well, no. But he goes <laughs> bad. Like, he turns evil for a little bit or something. Uh-huh. There's a new love interest introduced. Like, you get, like, Lana, Lana Lang is introduced in Superman 3. And, like, they're, it's all in, like, Smallville and stuff. It's weird. I don't know. I'm just saying. They, yeah. If only they had made a fourth one. It could have really, yeah. really gone could have taken out <laughs> nuclear weapons. <laughs> um, here's Sarah. Half Star. This is the men will turn into villains at the slightest inconvenient cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> These guys just all need therapy, honestly. <laughs> uh, Chris gave it a half star. Says everyone is an asshole in this movie. Okay, not Aunt May, but Christ on a crutch. Even the little girl with the camera is a dick. She I is. will never watch this again. <laughs> Half a star for Bruce Campbell. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> oddly enough, Bruce Campbell. This is the one Spider-Man movie where he's not being a dick. <laughs> uh, yeah, and well, Mary Jane's not really right. Well, I guess she is kind of every now and then. Yeah, you're right. Just, just this is just Aunt May. Aunt May is the MVP. Rosemary Harris is the MVP of this whole franchise. Honestly, yeah, uh, it was so sweet. On the commentaries, they talked about like every single person had a story about Rosemary Harris, like just being the best. You know, just like being (laughs) sweet. And Sam told a story about that, like when she heard Cliff, uh, uh, Robertson, Robertson. Yes. Yeah. I don't know why my mind went like Cliff Robertson was coming back. She like showed up on set that day just to be Uh, with him and like hang out with him. And, uh, yeah. Thomas Hayden church said she showed up with Ralph Fiennes. He was like, they're just hanging out. Yeah. He was like, who? Why are these people here? <laughs> or why is Ralph Fiennes <laughs> here? <laughs> he's, he's with that May. <laughs> okay. Carly gave it a half star and said, I don't like Emo Toby Maguire or the regular one. <laughs> Thanks, Carly. <laughs> Logan, half star. Absolute shit. Emo Peter gives this movie the worst possible rating on his own, but everything else sucks too. The acting is terrible. The fight scenes are mediocre, and they run. They ruin one of the greatest Spider-Man storylines of the comics. The villains are bad for different reasons. Topher Grace was the worst choice as Venom. Sandman vanishes for half the movie. Goblin Junior is an afterthought. This is easily the worst Marvel film, and it's one of the worst comic book films in history. Mm, I I actually agree with several of his points. I don't think it's the worst Marvel film, but um, what is uh, the worst Marvel film? 
Mm. I haven't seen Morbius yet, so I'll get back to you. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Life is a Circle gave it a half star. Honestly, props to Toby McGuire. He broke barriers and gave representation to many of us at home. Thankful that someone as ugly as him can have a huge on-screen role. <laughs> yes, we need more characters who haven't hit their slay button yet. Double chin <laughs> representation, ugly crying representation, annoying personality representation, can't handle life and responsibilities representation. This Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for Toby. Thank you, Toby. He does have a, <laughs> has a horrible crying face. Uh, he does. God. <laughs> oh. Half star from Hanner. That is not my Peter. <laughs> this entire movie is a dumpster fire. Each time you looked away, there was something else that wanted to make you look away again. I just, I, I cannot put it into words how badly I wanted Peter and MJ to die in this movie. Wow. I, it makes me think like someone showed him a picture and said like, hey, I got a picture of your dick. <laughs> It's <laughs> not my Peter. It's <laughs> not my Peter. And finally, Betsy gives it a half star. 0.5 stars for literally everything dark Peter Parker. 3.5 for everything else. Overall, I would have needed to be drunk to be in this film. Also, Spider-Man pip slaps the fuck out of MJ. <laughs> On accident. <laughs> oh, those are the reviews. Anyway, the uh, reviews. like I said, most, most reviews, I mean, people went off. And uh, so... You know, if you want some more one star reviews and you got they're, they're not hard hours to, to kill. Yeah. <laughs> well, creatively, Spider-Man 3 really took its toll on Sam Raimi and his experience on this film would eventually result in his exit from the franchise, which we will discuss here in a bit. Uh, but in that same Nerdist podcast interview that I mentioned earlier, uh, Raimi would say, quote, it's a movie that just didn't work very well. I think raising the stakes after Spider-Man 2 was the thinking going into it, and I think that's what doomed us. I should have just stuck with the characters and the relationships and progressed them to the next steps and not tried to top the bar. I think that was my mistake. Uh, and it's hard to argue with him there, honestly. <laughs> like that, he is, at least he's self-aware enough, but I think that he's right. I think that the movie should have focused on Peter and MJ and Harry. And then if you want to throw a big villain in the Sandman, that's fine. You know, it's like I said at the top of the show, I, I wish that I could sit here and talk about how Spider-Man 3 was just, you know, misunderstood or that it was ahead of its time or it's better than you remember. Uh, but the truth is, it's, it's a movie that is kind of hard to defend. It's not like, this is not like the worst movie ever made, like some of these reviews want to say. But but when you compare it to the movies that came before it. It's a it's a letdown, you know. You it, it kind of got away from everyone involved. It feels like. I mean, there are good moments in it. We, me and Gary, already mentioned our love of the uh, <laughs> the, the the emo <laughs> Peter Parker scene, the bully bully Parker scene. There are even, I mean, there are good moments, is is what I'm getting at, and there are even a couple of great moments here and there. But the movie is all in all a bit of a mess. I think uh, Spider Man Three. Watching it this time, and I watched it a couple of times because I, I watched that editor's cut. Did you? Did you guys have you guys seen the editor's cut? No, I don't think I did. Really? Um, I watched it this morning, and it's not vastly different, but it's uh, slightly different. They they released it in like 2021 ahead of No Way Home, I think, as like a promotional thing. Uh, they called it Spider Man like 3.1 or whatever, but it's a whole new cut of the film where the editor 
you know, he used some alternate takes in some scenes and uh, some different musical cues. And there are a couple scenes that are taken out, like the big exposition scene with the butler is, is removed from the film. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are a couple of scenes added and things like that. You know, uh, overall, it's a slightly better version of the movie, but it still has all of the same problems that the movie has, which means that it's, you know, it's it's just there's just too much there. It's still a mess. And there's you without, you, there's no way to remove like venom from the movie, no matter how you edit it. <laughs> right. The, to me watching it this time though, what I was getting at was um, it kind of feels like the end of an era almost uh, as far as blockbuster filmmaking goes, there was this kind of brief period of time in the late nineties and early two thousands when we had a handful of big blockbuster franchises that were really filmmaker driven, you had a series like, like one we've talked about here on the podcast, the matrix. Those are very mm. much the Wachowski's movies. Yes. They're big blockbusters, but they're very much driven by the vision of those directors. Uh, or you could even throw Lord of the Rings in there, even though it's based on a previously existing uh, book series, they really feel like a passion project for Peter Jackson. Mm. And I think that the first two, Spider-Man movies kind of feel that way. You can feel how important these films and these characters are for Sam Raimi and his enthusiasm for the material really just drips off the screen. But then nowadays, most blockbuster franchises are driven more by corporations and the producers that work for those corporations more so than they're driven by their directors. And I'm talking like big stuff, like the star Wars movies, the Marvel movies. I mean, Gary, you, you referenced it earlier, but that's how you explain someone like, Edgar Wright, or even Phil Lord and Chris Miller being fired from the MCU and and the Star Wars movies. It's because their directorial styles, their vision for the movies are too idiosyncratic to fit in with what their corporate overlords felt like the films should feel like. Uh, Mm. There are some exceptions to that rule. I mean, I think James Gunn is the biggest uh, exception. He's the best example of a director being able to work within like the Marvel wheelhouse while also creating films that feel like they're still his but those exceptions are few and far between. It does feel like that's almost an accident too for the for what it's worth. I mean, it's not an yeah. accident. I mean, but it, I know what you it mean. Kind of is. It feels like he's getting away. It feels like he James Gunn's getting away with something. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, they but, still haven't IMDb'd <laughs> James Gunn. <laughs> well, and I just mean the, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Although they show up in the Avengers movie, they like that's a weird version of the Marvel universe. Often, yeah, like it's all off in its own little corner. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And Spider-Man 3, though, to me, it feels like it's somewhere in between the worlds of director-fueled franchises and those that are driven primarily by producers. Because while there are some Sam Raimi touches here and there in the film, overall, Spider-Man 3 feels like a movie where producers care more about selling tickets and tie-in merchandise, toys, etc., than they do about telling a good story. Where they would they'd rather sell Venom action figures than to ask whether or not Venom actually belongs in this universe. Mm. And Venom, you know, we've talked, we've mentioned him several times, obviously, uh, about about his the way he's used in the film, and he's an easy target. Uh, but his inclusion is just one of many issues here. I think. I mean, the fact is that the film is far too bloated. I, th- I think that uh, if Raimi had just included Sandman as the main bad guy and left Venom out completely, it could have drastically improved the film. Uh, we've already talked about Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, he's very good in the role, so it would have been nice if his character had not, like one of those reviews said, not disappeared for like forty-five minutes in the middle of the film. And that really hurts his character and hurts his, his and hurts his performance, honestly, because you kind of forget about him. I do think that the Sandman's origin story is a little convenient 
you know? Uh, but then again, so is Spider-Man's. But, you know, like, he just, he doesn't create, it's not like he kind of creates himself as a villain, like in the first two movies. He just trips and falls into a hole where they happen to be doing a, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of experiment they're doing. <laughs> I don't know what those guys are trying to do. <laughs> yeah. they, they're, they, when they start the experiment, they're just like, uh, and uh, demolecularization, initializing, like, what do you, of what <laughs> there's a pile of sand like what are you guys doing and at the end of the experiment there's still a pile of sand like what were you guys what was the goal of this it's just it feels very convenient very lazy honestly um, I, I gotta be honest with you comic wise that's literally what happens to sandman like, I know, but like give us an give us an explanation as to why like what is this experiment like what how does this happen? Like, what's Although going, I'm no sure in Stanley's time, I think maybe it was like something atomic, you know? Probably, he, yeah. Yeah, mm, yeah. He just stumbles into it because he's running from the cops. Like, yeah. that's so, straight from the so comics. Marco falls into a pile of sand <laughs> and becomes Sandman. That's it. There you go. That's all you need. <laughs> enough, enough said. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think the film just doesn't give enough time to any of its villains. Uh, all three of them really get kind of shortchanged. Uh, which to me means that not a single one of the three villains plot lines feels satisfactory. Like none of them really work the way that they're supposed to, especially like Harry's really doesn't work. And that's the one that's been building up for three movies. And Mm. it just kind of like, eh. one of the things that I think Raimi did so well in the first two movies is how he linked his villains to Peter Parker and, and, you know, somewhat meaningful ways, you know, and he tries to do that here. We, they, that was their goal by linking Sandman to uncle Ben's death. And uh, that again is, it's a little bit convenient as a plot device. I don't really like him being connected to uncle Ben's death. It just seems like, it seems like the, it makes the world feel really small. It's like how in star Wars now, everybody's got to be a related to someone from the original yeah Skywalker or solo (laughs) or something. Uh, It just makes the universe feel very small. And, and I, I think you mentioned you you touched on that a little bit earlier, Todd. Right? You you were not a big fan of that plot device. Yeah, yeah. It was. I get it. It it makes me think of having Joker kill Bruce Wayne's parents. Where yeah, yeah. that's not what happens in the books, but I mean, they loosely it connects it, him in a way. At least in the Tim Burton one, it was like the origin story. Yeah. In yeah. this, it's like, oh man! By the third time that that the villain is like very closely linked to Parker, it's it's becoming a little bit like, yeah, really, guys. Like, what are the chances? Yeah. <laughs> like, like what are the chances that another super villain is somehow linked to Peter Parker? It just it's yeah. it's a little silly. One uh, of my arguments, one of my arguments for Sandman would have always been like, even with your origin story, like you were just talking about would have been it doesn't matter like how he's made the point Mm -hmm. of sandman would have been like he's a common criminal or he's just Mm -hmm. a criminal he's done some bad stuff but this is all okay like because because this is the guy like peter would have looked at like you're just another scumbag you're just another person i'm arresting you could have played with that a little bit sure and then he finds out that he's really trying to help his daughter that gives you some dramatic uh stuff you know to, to get into at the end but but to connect him personally to it is not necessarily. He's already milked Uncle Ben for everything you need. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, uh, 
It doesn't help Peter along anymore as a character, except right. I guess he, I see what he's doing. Turns he's out the insurance like, agent for Uncle Ben's car. <laughs> <laughs> right. Had yeah, it out for that, him. <laughs> I get that he's trying to, uh, Peter forgiving him at the end is supposed to be like the arc, you know? Like, yeah. And it, yeah. And it works at the end. Like that scene works, but it's payoff for something that like the journey to get to that scene doesn't really work for me yeah, you know yeah. uh but but you know they do that they they try to link peter to 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 sandman in that way we we of course as far as harry we know how he's connected but then you have venom and venom is pointless completely pointless he he brings nothing to this story at all i don't think uh because in when you think about it the symbiote is, is meant to magnify peter's aggression and his insecurity but the movie is already doing that before the symbiote ever shows up. Peter is already kind of being a dick. So we don't need the symbiote to show us that Peter is getting cocky and kind of turning into a jerk. He's already there at the beginning of the movie. Uh, you know, we see that in his interactions with Mary Jane. Yeah. And then they write Eddie Brock as uh, they're, they're kind of portraying him as the flip side to Peter. Uh, he's, he's this ruthless and, uh, a more uncaring version of Peter, but that's also a version that that's Peter's already turning into that version of himself, which means that not only is Venom pointless, but Eddie Brock is kind of pointless. Like his yeah. character is completely pointless. Uh, it really feels like to me, both Venom and Brock are just shoved into a story where they were never intended to be a part of. Uh, and it's it's why I think that Eddie Brock's transformation into just a cold-blooded killer in the last act of the movie feels so rushed. It's just like, oh, well, he's Venom. He's got to turn into a murderer now. And it's like, where did the, where did that come from? You know, yeah. yeah, I mean, Eddie Brock is kind of a jerk, but there's nothing that would indicate that he would turn into, like, a ruthless killer. Uh, and, and as we've mentioned, Topher Grace is woefully miscast in the role uh if, if you're gonna do venom i just and i've got nothing against Topher grace as an actor but this is not a good fit in my opinion yeah i'm gonna uh i'm gonna I'm, i'll mess this up probably on the timeline so comic nerds don't hold me to it but what i want to say about venom is is that you so venom in the comic books is not like his arc in the books is massive like i say his arc like I mean, he's gone through you know he's a spider-man character since the 80s now so he's doing all kinds of shit but the I mean, flash thompson was venom for a little while if yeah yeah him. exactly yeah. and the scorpion was and and uh, anyway i i think where i'm trying to go with this is that to say like i think what people think is cool about venom in the comics is that so the story's pretty similar. Like I, I'm not gonna like try to deep dive, so bear with me. But like it, it's a Eddie Brock still feels betrayed by Peter Parker. Like it's like Eddie Brock was covering the story and then he can't get what he needs, so he kind of makes something up, and then Peter Parker actually figures it out and it betrays Eddie Brock. Or like it, it costs Eddie Brock his job, basically. And then meanwhile, Peter Parker's dealing with this thing with the symbiote suit or whatever. The symbiote suit gets taken off of the church. All that's the same. Then the symbiote lands on Eddie Brock. So you got Eddie Brock who doesn't like Peter Parker. You got the symbiote who hates Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. They make a great combination. But then, in the comic books, that character is slow built over like at least like six months. Like It's like 
it takes a yeah. while. Like he mm-hmm. fucks with Spider Man. He starts like just messing with him because Spider Man, Spider Man sits or Spider Sense doesn't pick him up. And so he'll go and like push him at the train t- tracks just to see what happens. <laughs> and like he'll, you know, like that's literally a panel of a comic book. It's like a hand comes out of nowhere and pushes him in front of a subway just to see mm. what happens. And like it's, and then finally when he does show up, he doesn't like immediately goes. He doesn't like immediately try to kill Peter Parker. Like he wants to torture him. So Spider-Man at this time, he's lost the symbiote suit. He's wearing the black suit still. He just made a black suit and he's wearing it. But so then Venom shows up at like Mary Jane's apartment and like hangs out and like tries to scare Mary Jane. Not to kill her, just to fuck with her. Just to freak her out and make her afraid of Peter when he shows up in the black suit or whatever. And anyway, there's more like, there's like psychological stuff to Venom and there's like so much more depth to the character, I guess is what I'm trying to say that like it builds over time and Venom, by the way, is not completely a villain in the comic books. Like he's not like he thinks of himself as uh, justified. Like he, he wants to take out bad guys. He just hates Spider-Man. He wants Spider-Man to be dead. <laughs> right. He thinks Spider-Man is a bad guy and just deserves to die. And hmm. so, like, other than that, he, so so he's a little more complex than he get the time here. And I say all that because when I was watching it through with the commentary tracks and I'm, like, going through, I was, like, started to notice. I'm, like, fuck, man. Venom is, like, literally in this movie for, like, 25 minutes, maybe. Yeah. If yeah. that, And not, like, on screen that whole time. Like, that's just from when the character first exists till the end. So you got this character that everybody's anticipating for all this time. And then and you, you barely do anything with him. Yeah, yeah. You just shortchange yeah. the whole thing. So what's the point? Not to mention that by the time that he had been introduced in the comics, you know, Spider-Man's been going on for 20 years in comics and there's all kinds of other stuff like, you know, the fantastic four, like more outrageous stuff, you know, cosmic, uh, the, the, uh, all the like crazy stuff out in outer space and things like that. So oh, having yeah. an alien symbiote introduced, it, it, fine, it fits. It fits the world that they've built in the Spider-Man comics at this point. But in in this, you know, you've got this alien parasite in a a kind of real world atmosphere that Raimi has created, and to mm. me, that just it was never going to work. Because there's nothing, it tonally it just doesn't fit in with this with yeah. the the universe of the Sam Raimi Spider Man films. Even though there have been some you know sci fi ideas through the series, like the the experiments of uh, Doc Ock and things like that, uh, suddenly introducing an evil goo from outer space in a series that hasn't left New York, nevertheless Earth, just feels like a boneheaded decision. Like it just doesn't make any sense yeah it's like it it feels like they're really jumping the shark to me to me it feels like you really betrayed three movies worth of harry build Mm -hmm. because by the way while everybody's talking about the two villains being too many and you didn't need two villains there's technically three there's technically three villains in this movie yeah and and harry is shortchanged himself like the venom part causes everybody to be shortchanged. Harry is 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 fucked over because his story doesn't get quite enough. And I and I honestly believe, and I said this a little bit before, but Thomas Hayden Church, like I really believe in his performance as Sandman. And I believe that character could have had the emotional depth that it needed if it had more time, especially or could have it could have carried the movie on its own. Sandman yeah. could have and you yeah. and you fucked it over. 
I think most of the problems with this movie would have been solved or at least improved if you if you could just pluck the Venom character out of it completely and everything related to the Venom character was if all of that was out of the movie, including Eddie Brock and all that shit, the whole movie, it would have given the other plot lines more room to breathe, especially Sandman and Harry's uh, because those plot lines do work. Now the Harry one, I do think there's some dumb stuff. Uh, I think the amnesia thing is really stupid. Uh, It just feels like a soap opera cliche to, get, yeah. to suddenly give him amnesia a really that, cheap plot device like, he gets hit in the head gets amnesia then he magically gets his memory back after having a uh, an awkward I, moment with mj I, you know i'm gonna be honest with you like i get that that t- makes total sense but i also love the fact that you get like a little brief moment of like harry as it was like who he was originally so like you yeah. get the dumb lovable guy to remind you that like there was a reason these people were close to him. Cause if you sure. think about it in the scheme of things, this is years after the first movie. So people, you know, if they need that refresher of like, this no, is, I, this is the best friend. I get that. It's just the way that the amnesia as a plot device is lazy in, in something yeah. like this. That's just like, a that's a shortcut. That's a lazy way to get there. And, you know, Harry's whole thing is that he wants revenge against Spider-Man because he thinks Spider-Man killed his dad. And then there's all this, dramatic tension that's resulted from this has been building up over multiple movies. And then how does the movie resolve it by having Harry's Butler give him some vital information that he could have given him all along. I I also, I'd like to think, listen, guys, I know that over time we've, we've spent more time together than we do these days. Although we've been good about seeing each other here recently. I'd like to think though, that if I walked into a room and I found my dad dead and Todd or Justin, you were standing over the body. I would at least take a moment to be like, "Hey, what did happened? you kill my dad? What right. happened here? <laughs> let's talk. Should we talk about this? Should we discuss Should we, this? Can we? I, I just need a moment. Let's let's sit down for a second. Let's have a discussion I, about this. But then in the in the, the Gary Senior, I'm coming for you. <laughs> then they end, but they end this whole thing by having like it's one of the trilogy's most crucial subplots. And it just has this wet fart of an ending where the butler <laughs> is just like, well, by the way, there's evidence that he was killed by his own glider. And I'm like, why? I performed my own why? autopsy why? and forensic investigation. Why did you not tell him this? <laughs> why, why did you not tell him this two movies ago? Like, Going off Todd's <laughs> statement, I wish he would have asked, how do you know this? And yeah, then he yeah. would have responded because I'm Bill Paxton's dad. Well, he's he's maybe he's like a maybe he's like an Alfred type where he's like a jack of all trades. He's a yeah, you know. that would make sense. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so we've been mostly shitting on this movie. We we've praised a couple things here and there. We've praised Thomas Hayden Church. We've praised um, we've praised the emo park, or two out of three of us have praised the emo Parker scene. Uh, so let's let's introduce a segment called say something nice about spider-man 3 (laughs) (laughs) and i'll start other than what we've already mentioned i think you know despite a lot of the movie kind of getting away from him i do think that sam raimi's talent does shine through on some of the action set pieces in this uh we've discussed some of these um before but you know a lot of these action set pieces they get they start being worked on like way ahead of time uh, because mm-hmm. they have to plan it out. They have to do uh, animatics and all this stuff. And so a lot of times this stuff's getting worked on before a script's ever complete. So they're going to be more, they're going to feel more complete and more ready 
to go. And I think that's the maybe why they work better than a lot of the film. Uh, but I think the first big action scene, which is where Harry attacks Peter, and then the case, uh, the, the chase, I mentioned it before. I think that scene is, I think that fight is actually really good. And I love the way Raimi's camera just flies all over the place in it. Mm. I do think there's some, like I said, some questionable green screen work in that. Uh, but I think it's really good. And I think the one that follows that, the big crane scene with Gwen, is a really great action set piece. Now, whether they work in the context of the movie, that's a whole other story. But the action set pieces themselves, as far as the way that Sam Raimi is filming them, I think are really good. Even the fight with, with Venom at the end is a really good fight. I wish it hadn't been with Venom, but it's very well done. I love the scene where he, uh, where Peter grabs the the poles and like, he's just slamming them around the way that the camera follows the action. in that is really outstanding. And you can, and it feels like a Sam Raimi movie at times. Uh, it's just too bad that the rest of the movie kind of got away from him, but the man can still shoot an action scene. I was happy that we got to see Ursula again. I actually really like Ursula. I like and, Ursula a lot and too. I wish Peter, Peter hadn't Peter, been such a dick to her. Peter would would be so lucky to end up with somebody like Ursula. She seems very sweet. She bakes very nice. Yeah, she. she I, I will say, yeah. I crush. I crush on Ursula too. I. It is one of the funnier parts of the movie watching him do that scene on the phone with Kurt Connors, and <laughs> she's feeding him cookies. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, that's Ursula's Todd. That, that's yeah, that, that's, that's it. That's all. That's all Todd's got is that he likes Ursula. Yep. <laughs> <sighs> all right, I'll go. Uh, to me, Venom is the weakest part. It should not be there. I think we've established that. Look, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that this movie is amazing, like Spider Man. See what I did there. Hey. But some people talk about this movie like it is the worst, and I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Yeah, there there is stuff that just doesn't work, or it should have been trimmed out. Uh, we talk about things that get trimmed out all the time, and it's honestly rare that we find a movie like this where we can be like, "Wow, if they'd have cut out this whole story, the movie would have been twice as good." Yeah, uh, <laughs> but anyway, this movie isn't the worst. It's not the it's not the worst movie in the MCU, technically, in my opinion, or. If you want to not consider it part of the MCU, it's not. I don't think it's the worst non-MCU movie, yeah. non-MCU Marvel movie. Uh, it's not even the worst threequel, in my opinion. I'd probably have to revisit it, but hell, it might not even be the worst Spider-Man movie. I don't know. Yeah, but I haven't seen The Amazing Spider-Man and, and its sequel in a long time, so I don't remember yeah. much about them. But all of that, though, is largely due to Sam Raimi as a director. Like he is, he is more than competent. Like he is, Sam Raimi is an artist. He is a visionary. His eye with that camera is like nobody else's. And really anything, is. yeah, anything he touches, I don't know. If it ain't golden, it's got a lot of shine. Yeah. Yeah. And, I agree. Uh, and I mean, that's why I get a little bit sad when I watch this movie because, you know, we've, We've spent so many hours on this show getting to know Sam Raimi, and the one thing that we we love about him is how infectious his enthusiasm is. Like he likes to have fun. Mm. Uh, you know, when you watch a Sam Raimi movie, you can feel how much fun he's having, and that infuses his movies with a very specific energy. They're filled with joy, even when they involve like 
you know, evil demons ripping people limb from limb. They're, they're so fun. And I think that joy and that enthusiasm, that, that kind of energy that he brings to it is what's missing from this film. A lot of the times it often feels like he is, uh, other than in some of those action scenes where you can see his hand, uh, it often feels like he's kind of just going through the motions here. Like he's, just become a cog in a machine, which a guy like Sam Raimi shouldn't be. Uh, It almost feels like he's driving a car that's barreling out of control because someone else keeps trying to snatch the steering wheel away from him. Uh, That's someone being Avi Arad, I guess. Uh, And that's all that he can do to keep it from crashing, you know? Uh, So it it, it, kind of bums me out because I know that he's, that this is not like, that this is, I can, I can feel his frustration on screen. Yeah. You, know, you, 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 know. you can it, it, it's funny you, you said it that way because uh, listen i'm not gonna i'm not gonna shit on avi arad like i i there there's different people cover from different mo- motivations and you and can he's make ad, the he's admitted that his fault on on the problems with the film yeah i was gonna say like i mean you could make the argument that sam Raimi shouldn't have taken on a job that he wasn't handling and we can probably get more into that but if this is a show to talk about the director and hell even his like whole team uh this this whole thing is the part where it shows you just how much that matters in movie world because this movie had every reason to your point it had every reason in the world to fail and to not to not matter even or to like fucking be in obscurity because of how bad it was. And it didn't do that. And it hasn't done that. And I don't think, I don't think it has. And I think the fact that it hasn't is 100% because Sam Raimi is the director of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not just some director for hire kind of thing. Cause he, even when, yeah. when he's not at a hundred percent, it's, it's, he's still Sam Raimi, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I th- it, uh, it, you know, a little bit, Expanding on what you said, Justin, it kind of feels like Sam Raimi turned in a phenomenal chapter one and cleared the bar a second time with number two. And I feel like his frustration, I I, I feel like there was like a sense of betrayal of like, I've, I've just hit two home runs. Do you guys yeah. not trust me yeah. to do this again? Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. what I'm doing. Like, so it, it feels like these people who were really on his side and who championed him in the beginning and fought to get him this based on his passion have completely abandoned that for dollar signs. Yeah. And I, yeah, frustration, betrayal I, I, to a point where he's just like, how does the venom suit look? I don't, I don't care. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you, you, know, so. you just say if that one statement, Todd, you just changed my whole opinion on something I said earlier because I'm looking at this now and I'm thinking, Avi Arad, like everybody was backing Sam Raimi, and then Avi Arad's the one who's like forcing venom into this thing. And how do you, if your motivation is to care about Marvel and to care about the characters and to be so good at like protecting? how they're portrayed on screen. How do you get so far into Venom being this that you're like, keep it going. Like, this is what I want. This is Venom. (laughs) It's like, that's, ah, it's such a bummer. I don't know. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Uh, When I was watching the commentary of the producers, not the movie, the producers, the producers of this movie. Not Mel. It wasn't Mel Brooks. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, 
Laura Ziskin had a Mel Brooks uh, series. Oh man, one day that, one yeah, day that should happen. <laughs> Laura Ziskin had two great stories. She had she was talking about how Sam Raimi told her that Spider Man changed him, and uh, one of the stories uh, was basically they they talk about how for him a lot of times it was like they'd have talks about how making sure the fans were happy and how there were so many Spider-Man comic fans and how important that was to please them. But then this one story was on, they, she said they were on sixth Avenue in New York city filming the crane sequence. And she says there was like this huge crowd, like sitting outside and they were watching everything and they stayed all day long watching them film this sequence and so finally she went over to sam and was like these people have been here like all day do you want to go talk to them or something and that sam went over and like started hanging out with the people that were in that crowd and he started like signing autographs and he stayed for forever like talking to everybody and whatever and uh said all these people were like praising him for everything and she said he came back over and was like laura they're spider-man movie fans and like it had blown him away mm. that it was like more about the movie than even yeah. the comics for him. And then it changed him. And the other story is, by the way, she said that they went to France together for a screening of like Spider-Man two. And, uh, and she said they were sitting together and he leaned over and said, you know, for my whole life, I've loved movies and I've always been fascinated by what the camera does and what the camera can do. And now, after these two movies, the thing that I think I care more about in movies is what these characters do hmm. and what the characters can do. And so for me, when I heard that, and then I like rewatched the scene of like the fact that the ending of this trilogy is Peter and Mary Jane dancing. Yeah. It's everything you need to know that to know that that's true. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just beautiful. It's really like nice. I almost got a tear in my eye. <laughs> well, I might that, have fallen like a baby. I don't. I don't know. I won't say. <laughs> well, you know, if I can reference that Nerdist interview again, because uh, it's really good, you should go listen to it. Uh, there's, I've got another quote from him. He said, "I messed up plenty on the third Spider-Man. So many people hated me for years. They still hate me, and it, it kind of bums me." out to hear him say that because Sam Raimi is a hard guy to hate, you know? Uh, and I don't, I honestly, I don't think anyone who saw Spider-Man three hates Sam Raimi, at least no, no one with half a brain. I think fans of the series just wanted him to be able to exit the franchise that he helped to create on his own terms with a movie that was truly his vision, just like the first two had been. And I think that's what the real kind of tragedy of Spider-Man three is. It feels like we were robbed of another great Sam Raimi movie, yeah. you know, that it's not that, this is the worst movie ever made or anything like that. It's just like, we know how good he can be. We know how good he can do Spider-Man if he is allowed to do so. And, and his hands were often tied on this one. And we got a movie that was not as good as a result. Yep. All right. So we're about to wrap things up guys, but we do want to get into our further viewing segment. Uh, Gary, let's start with you. What do you have? If you're, it's, it's kind of hard to pair the third part of a trilogy with something else, you know. But um, mm. what would you, what would you pair with with Spider Man Three? Well, you'll hate this, but I mean, this is the best I got. So <laughs> sorry. Um, 
I would say, uh, well, I, I did mention the Superman movies earlier, so I'd say mm-hmm. Superman three would be a good one. Uh, not not a good one, but it's it's a, it's a one. <laughs> this one. It's, it's an appropriate one. <laughs> it's an appropriate. One. It's fun enough. Sure. Uh, and then I would say, okay, okay, the next one I honestly thought of is like watch Venom. If yeah. you want to see a little bit better version of Venom, I think still not perfect by any no, means. No, but honestly, that was my pick was Venom, and not that it's. I don't think Venom's a great movie. I think it's fine. I don't. I don't think it's any more like comic accurate than this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least it's having a good time with the character. And I still think it's weird that they made a Venom standalone movie that doesn't involve Spider Man. But it's it's kind of worth watching for Tom Hardy's performance alone because he's having a good he, he's having fun you know so it it is it is worth checking out I still haven't seen the sequel though I haven't seen the second one yeah it's it's nutty um, yeah, I, I'll watch I would it say it's uh you know, like the next level down would be be telling you to watch I don't know uh, Fantastic Four with Michael Chiklis and uh, Jessica Alba <laughs> yeah and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, not and revisiting then, uh, that one. no I was just gonna say like that one or x-men origins wolverine where you can have like movies that are (laughs) almost what you want they have like 10 minutes or 20 minutes each of things that you think are pretty cool movies that like if you watch them (laughs) watch them and then watch spider-man 3 spider-man 3 is not going to seem so bad yeah again (laughs) not the worst non-mcu marvel movie (laughs) anyway what about you todd well, that is actually the theme of my choices is here's a couple of here's a couple of uh, comic book threequels. Uh, uh, is one to, of them going to be X-Men The Last Stand? Uh, don't get ahead of me, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's start with uh, 1993, written and directed by Stuart Gilliard, uh, or excuse me, Gillard, Elias Codius, and Paige Turco. And Corey Feldman rep- reprised their roles. This is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Part 3. <laughs> yeah, based on the characters created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, uh, sometimes called Turtles in Time. Uh, I thought we were yeah. I thought we were playing the litter ball game. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's what Todd usually does, is he just starts yeah. naming people, and then we have to guess. So. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, 2006, written by Simon Kinberg and Zach Penn. Starring four Star Trek alum and Chris Claremont as Lawnmower Man. It is X Men 3. The Lawnmower Man? Man? There's a character named Lawnmower Man in the X Men movie? He, Chris Claremont is credited as Lawnmower Who's Man. Who's Chris Claremont? He's, he's one uh, of the writers. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's one of the X Men writers. Okay. Oh, that's right. We talked about we talked about him. Uh he's the one who had the meeting with uh with Jimmy Jimmy Cameroon. Yeah. Back in episode one of this series, yeah. yeah that's right. How about making an X-Men movie? All right, so usually when a movie makes nearly a billion dollars at the box office, a sequel is a sure thing. Surely, you know, this movie made almost $900 million, so sure, Spider-Man 4 should be coming around. But something weird happened with Spider-Man 3. Uh, the tide was kind of shifting. Uh, critics were no longer singing the franchise's praises. Uh, in fact, there was one critic, a guy named Michael Booth. He wrote for the Denver Post. In his review, he kind of summed it up pretty well. He said, uh, all in all, the fun has simply gone out of it. And unfortunately, it seemed like the fun had also gone out of it for Sam Raimi. It, you know, His heart just 
didn't seem to be in it anymore. The battles that he had had with his producers over the inclusion of Venom may have whittled away his enthusiasm, or the fact that he had worked on nothing but Spider-Man for nearly a decade may have had something to do with it. But either way, uh, Raimi was reluctant to immediately return for a fourth film. And when he was reluctant, Sony actually held off on announcing a sequel right away, as they had done with the previous two entries. Uh, but then uh, months later, uh, September 2008, this is a, almost a year and a half, like 16 months after the first, after uh, Spider-Man 3 got released, Sony signed Raimi and McGuire onto a fourth film. So by this time, uh, Raimi had gotten to work on Drag Me to Hell, which brought him back to his Spooka Blast roots, a process that we covered, and I would say very well, in our fi the final episode of our uh, previous Sam Raimi series. So if you haven't heard that, go check it out. Uh, Don't get too prideful. Don't get too prideful. <laughs> but <laughs> while he was uh, doing the press tour for that film, questions about Spider-Man 4 kept coming up because it had been announced that he was signed on for it. And development began on the film. Sony hired James Vanderbilt, who had written uh, David Fincher's Zodiac, to write the script. Uh, that script was later rewritten by a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright named David Lindsay Abair, and then later by Gary Ross, who was the writer-director of Pleasantville and Seabiscuit, so I imagine Toby Maguire had something to do with his involvement. Mm. Uh, and when they were working on it, Raimi had, you know, he had expressed interest in transforming Dr. Kirk Connors into the lizard in the film. And there were also plans to make the vulture, the film's primary villain. Uh, they went so far as to have James Atchison work on designs for the character. Uh, Sony entered negotiations with John Malkovich to take on the role, which I think is a pretty oh. good, pretty good. I mean, that's a, that's great casting for yeah. the vulture. You, you can find uh, designs online of, of that vulture suit. Yeah. I was, about, I was like, about to ask. There were going to be like blades uh, for the wings and his transformation was going to uh, apparently kind of go to the horror movie kind of uh, vibe that we got with Doc Ock's transformation. You know, it, it could have been pretty cool. Uh, Anne Hathaway was also uh, in talks to play Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. Black Cat. Didn't get the role, but at least she got to play another cat-themed burglar a couple years later. Hey. Uh, so why did Spider-Man 4 never happen? Well, Raimi simply was not happy with any of the scripts that had been written, and he didn't want to repeat the mistakes of Spider-Man 3 and head into filming without a script that he knew that he was 100% satisfied with, which, good for him, honestly. Yeah. And on top of that, Sony had announced a release date, just like they did on the previous films. They went ahead and announced a release date. They said, this is going to come out on May 6, 2011. And without a satisfactory script in place, Raimi just didn't think he could meet that deadline and still deliver a movie that he felt was good enough. And yeah. so he eventually just left the project. On January 11th, 2010, it was officially announced by Sony that Spider-Man 4 had been canceled. Now, I don't know this 100% because I'm trying to look for like one of the producers to just outright say it, but supposedly... He also he was having disputes with Avi Arad again, yeah. and uh, and that Arad was well. If you look at the end of Spider Man Three, when Venom dies, there is a little bit of goop that's left over, and mm -hmm. uh, Avi Arad was a real big fan of Carnage happening, <laughs> and so I don't well, know. He, oh, oh, boy. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I, I did see this one quote from Sam Raimi and he, he just, uh, this was later on and this kind of goes to everything we've been talking about, but he said, they really gave me a tremendous amount of control in the first two films, but there were different opinions on the third and I didn't really have creative control at all. So to speak, the best way for me to move forward is I've got to be the singular voice that makes creative choices on the film. Good. Good for him. And, uh, 
Yeah, and so it seems like that that's what he's sticking to. Now, now to everything you just said, and I said you, you can find the vulture stuff online that John Malkovich was going to support supposedly where I did find an interview with Rolling Stone where they asked him what he would really like to do, and he he mentioned, and then I remember at the time this blew up. He said he wanted Bruce Campbell back as Mysterio, and that blew up into like a whole thing. That would be but, incredible casting, honestly, because yeah, Mysterio's but, an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was gonna say, and actually, when asked for clarification, he he in this one interview said not as a main villain, but one of many that Peter would take down in quick yeah. succession. At, like, Almost like a, like in a montage kind of thing. Yeah. Like in a montage. Yeah. Uh, he said that the villain he really wanted to tackle that he felt like he had missed out on was Craven the hunter. Yeah. And that's a big character in those early ones too. Mm-hmm. And he said, we were going to, he said, quote, we were going to work that character into the next Spider-Man. Naturally, the appeal of that villain came from his entire gimmick of being a big game hunter, one who could really be a test for Peter Parker's dual identities. He's the ultimate hunter, and Spider-Man is like the most agile trickster in the skies. I thought we could make something really unique with that. Could have been fun. Yeah. Well, despite Spider-Man 4 kind of falling apart, Sony, you know, they still own the character, so of course they had no intention of leaving this cash cow behind. This thing had made what, almost $3 billion or something (laughs) for them at this point. Uh, And so by 2012, they would reboot the franchise uh, with producers Lord Ziskin and Avi Arad hiring Mark Webb to direct the script by Alvin Sargent. There's that name again. He's all over these movies. James Vanderbilt and Steve Cloves. And this was, uh, of course, The Amazing Spider-Man starring Andrew Garfield in the lead role. Uh, That film would produce a sequel a couple years later, which received mixed reviews. And then in 2016, after some savvy negotiating on the part of Disney and Marvel, the character of Spider-Man would officially join the Marvel Cinematic Universe, leading to some of the studio's most profitable films to date. Now, Sam Raimi's influence on the Spider-Man character uh, and on the superhero genre as a whole can't be overstated. He blazed Mm -hmm. the trail in how these stories are told with as much emphasis on character as on effects. He oversaw a visual effects team who translated Spider-Man's physical movements to the big screen in ways that had never been done before. But more than anything else, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies re-legitimatized the superhero movie genre, helping to turn Marvel from a fledgling funny book company into a global entertainment powerhouse that has, to this date, produced a series of films that have made more than $27 billion with no signs of slowing down. And as for Raimi, well, we mentioned it earlier, but he followed Spider-Man 3 up with Drag Me to Hell, and then after dropping out of Spider-Man 4... He went on to direct Oz the Great and Powerful for Disney, a film that was headlined by his Spider-Man co-star James Franco. He continued to produce as well, shepherding films like the 2013 Evil Dead reboot, uh, Don't Breathe, and Crawl to the Big Screen. He created and directed episodes of the TV series Ash vs. Evil Dead and 50 States of Fright, among several others. And then in 2022, Sam Raimi directed his first feature film in nearly a decade and... Fittingly, it was another comic book movie, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which itself was a follow-up to 2021 Spider-Man No Way Home, which saw Tobey Maguire, Willem Dafoe, and Alfred Molina all reprise the Spider-Man roles that they'd established in Raimi's franchise. Kind of a fun mm. full circle moment for him here, you know? Yeah. Uh, and after the release of that film, fans started petitioning to get a Raimi-directed Spider-Man 4. 
Uh, every they, they're like, well, Toby's back. Sam Raimi's back in the MCU. Let's just do a Spider-Man four in this you know side universe that we've created. And while the concept of the multiverse that's been introduced in the MCU does make this possible, Raimi has said that he has no plans to direct another Spider-Man film. Although he has said in some interviews that he'd be open to the possibility, but only if there was a story that he felt made it worth his while to return to the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, while that's incredibly unlikely to happen, at least we'll always have Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films to revisit. Even if the third one doesn't quite live up to the first two, you know, two out of three ain't bad, right? Right. That's true. I mean, it's, it is a complete journey. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just too bad that this, that this one ends or that this one exists the way that it does. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the, in the version that it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I did want to say that, um, you know, I, I, I built her up on the first one and I, I talked to a little bit about her, but uh, going into this, uh, Sam Raimi sadly decided not to continue on. And Laura Ziskin, the producer that I've talked so much about during this series, who I mentioned last episode, developed breast cancer uh, during the release of Spider-Man 2, uh, sadly passed away as she got so far as to like they got Andrew Garfield and they got to like Amazing Spider-Man, but before it officially was released, she did pass away, but not before yeah. developing a charity for cancer. And uh, she's a big part of Hollywood. She was the first person to even produce the Oscars. I don't even remember how much good shit I said about her. Our first person, I'm not first person to produce the Oscars, first woman. To I was about to say, she would have been very old. To, to yeah. Not- <laughs> first woman to do the Oscars. Uh, and, uh, Sam Raimi uh, spoke of her after she passed. He said about her, she knew a good story. Working with the right writer, she could make it great, and then her passion would turn it into something better. Whenever I got stuck on a problem, she would say, the water is always always muddiest before it clears. And I asked her one time what that meant, and she said, no matter how bleak it seems, sometimes creatively, the answers we seek are right around the corner if we just keep diligently working on solutions and stay truthful to ourselves. She passed away, but you can't find a negative thing about her from anybody that works with her. I did, uh, I did love that. Like not long before she passed away, the Hollywood, uh, reporter talked to her and asked her, Hey, what do you think would not get made today? Uh, cause she was complaining about studios and how they wanted things their way. And they weren't willing to take artistic risks on people who had their own visions. And they were like, well, what do you think wouldn't happen today? And she said, everything. Uh, <laughs> I did no way out to die for the doctor, pretty woman, Spider-Man. Uh, the movie business is narrow. <laughs> but God bless Laura Ziskin. I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, of course. Well, that brings us to the end of our Sam Raimi series. Uh, Probably for, I don't know, maybe forever. I I don't foresee us doing another one unless he, I mean, he might start doing some other stuff outside of the MCU. I'm definitely not going to do an Oz the Great and Powerful episode. Uh, Not unless the fans are really clamoring for it, and I can't imagine that they are. It's not even on the roulette wheel? (laughs) It's not on the roulette wheel. It is not. <laughs> so we have plenty of other stuff on that roulette wheel, which we will be announcing our next roulette on the next bonus episode. So listen out for that. Uh, but otherwise, I think we're done for this week, fellas. You guys want to tell everyone where you can be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Hor on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host the this is wrestling. This is pro wrestling. I can't even do it when I have it fucking written right in front of me. Uh, I host. <laughs> 
this is pro wrestling at this is pro wrestling on youtube and tipw show on instagram i also work with the national wrestling alliance and you can access their links in their bio on instagram at nwa uh june 9th i'll be headlining a comedy show in hiawassee georgia if you like star trek i'll be hosting trek fest 38 in riverside iowa june 22nd through 25th go to trekfest.org for details you can find me playing modifius's star trek adventures on cosmic crit on youtube at cosmic crit i'm also working my way through the entire star trek franchise in chronological order on my show computer resume podcast available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at computer resume and i'm at mr todd a davis on facebook twitter instagram letterboxd and D beyond as long as they behave themselves well this episode's coming out on june 20th so unless you have a time machine uh you will have already missed that comedy show in hiawassee oh is it oh damn (laughs) (laughs) i am at justin underscore bishop on instagram uh the show is cinema underscore shock that's instagram and twitter uh you can also find us on facebook check out all of our episodes as well as links to our discord and our merch etc on cinemashock.net and until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather And be excellent to each other. If I may, sir, I've seen things in this house I've never spoke of. The night Johnny died, I I cleaned his wound. The blade that pierced his body came from the keys. I, I know you're trying to defend Johnny's honor, but there is no question that he died by his own hand. I loved Johnny as I've loved you, as your friends love me. How would he know that's by his own hand? Yeah. I, I... <laughs> How would he fucking yeah. know? Like, I mean, <laughs> there's I no know. way. <laughs> what is he? <sighs> it doesn't make any sense. Nothing about yeah. that that wrap up to that plot line makes any sense. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so dumb and so lazy. Uh, all right, we're going.